Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, friends. Welcome in. Welcome to the show. So good to be with you. This is a very special live. I will be honest, we put this together pretty quick. I'm pretty impressed with the team, and I'm really excited for this one. We are responding to a podcast interview uh, with Nancy Percy. We'll get into her in a few minutes here on the Alex Clark show, where she made the comment that women's suffrage, in her estimation, was a net loss, and also talked about how evangelical complementarian marriages tend to be better in every way than their counterparts. So we're going to get into all those claims and more. few quick need-to-knows and announcements. If this is your first time watching, welcome. My name is Tim. I'm the creator of the New Evangelicals. The goal of this live is never to dehumanize our opponents or to treat them in bad faith. The goal is to respond to some of the claims and maybe offer a better way forward from what we're hearing. So this is not about trying to create clickbait or trying to say, look how foolish these people are. The goal is to hear the claims and then say, well, is that the way it is? And so on this episode of A Scholar Reacts, I brought on not one, but two amazing guests. I'm going to bring them in right now. Boom. Hi, friends. How are you? Good. I'm good. Good. Let's have you both introduce yourselves. Sheila, let's start with you. Okay, so I'm Sheila Ray Grigoire, and we're doing academic introductions too for the purpose of this, I believe. So I have two master's degrees, one in research in um, sociology and one in public administration. And together with my team at Bear Marriage, we have conducted the largest studies of evangelical women's marital and sexual satisfaction done to date. Great to have you. Thank you for making time. I mean, Sheila, you and I have had now a few different podcast conversations, yeah. so it's great to have you back on for a, a live YouTube. It's awesome. And I'm Beth Allison Barr. I'm a professor of history at Baylor University. I'm the James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History here. I have my PhD now actually for 20 years from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with specialization in medieval history, women's history, and religious history. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, both of you have written and, some amazing books. And, <laughs> here's I have Beth. it right here. I got you right here. <laughs> Thanks, All right. So we have we have Beth's you Alice Barr's book here, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I've read this book. It is amazing. I recommend it to everyone. It's available on audio. It's available wherever books are sold. And also, Sheila, I have your book right here as well, The Great Sex Rescue, <laughs> The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. It, another great book that has made quite the splash, no pun intended, uh, in so many ways. <laughs> so it's great to have you on. Now, we are responding to a, a podcast interview uh, with Nancy Percy on the Alex Clark Show. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Alex Clark is a podcast host. It's a podcast that's sponsored by Turning Point USA. If you watch any of our content, you know Turning Point and you know how I feel about Turning Point. Uh, we'll get into some of that as we kind of get along, but it's important to note that. Now, Nancy is a very interesting person because she is... Someone who really in the, I would argue, maybe the evangelical sense is really, she's on that circuit of like the apologist, apologetics space. She wrote, her most recent book is this one right here. It's called, there we go, The Toxic War on Masculinity. So she's actually been on quite a, a, a plethora of different shows. 
she's been on things like Ali Suckey's podcast, Relatable. She's been, on, she's been on John Mark Homer's podcast, on Elisa Childers podcast. So she's been around and her background, here's how she describes herself on her website. Nancy Percy is a best-selling author and speaker, a former agnostic. She was held, hailed in the economic, economist, I can't pronounce that. Anyway, thank you. I'm like having a brain fart today. The Economist, as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Washington Times, First Things, Human Events, American Thinker, Daily Caller, The Federalist, CNS News, and Fox News. She has appeared on NPR, C-SPAN, and Fox and Friends. She is currently a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Percy's books have been translated into 19 languages and include Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Love Thy Body, and The Toxic War on Masculinity. So she has been around, and that's important for us to recognize. So there's kind of two parts to this response. The first part is her take on women's suffrage and then getting my co-hosts here and their feedback. And then the other side is her claims about marriage, complementarian marriages, in particular, the war on men, et cetera. So I think what we're going to start is we're going to pull the clips up with Nancy talking to her, the podcast host about women's suffrage. And Beth, that's really, I know, your expertise here. So the goal is we'll kind of go through the clip. And as you find things, we'll we'll stop the video. And we'll have kind of your response. Does that work for everyone? Yes. And just for all everyone watching, just in case you don't know, women's suffrage is women's right to vote. Sometimes people don't know what that means. So <laughs> I love how I'm happy that you beat me too, because one of my questions was going to be, let's just start real basic. You know, how do we think about the term women's suffrage and what does yeah. it mean? So yeah. women right to vote. Okay, cool. Well, here we go, friends. Without further ado, I see you all in the comments, by the way. Yes, I know right here. These people are legendary. Absolutely. They really are. It's amazing. I'm kind of honored. I'm kind of fanboying myself. So it's great. Let's start and have you guys respond. Here we go. I don't think I had ever known this before reading your book. You write that there were actually a lot of women who were against women's suffrage at first. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you read even the feminists at the time, they, I have, the, and I have the quotes, I have the receipts. <laughs> I have the quotes from the leading feminists at the time saying, you know, the biggest barrier is that women... <laughs> So can, other can women are not here? in favor of the vote. We absolutely can. <laughs> We're 30 seconds in. I'm happy to pump the brakes. Go ahead. Oh, I'm so sorry. So I will tell you that I've been teaching actually four back-to-back semesters of a class, a uh, basic history class at Baylor called Votes for Women. And I've taught it in England. I've taught it in London. And then I taught it twice last semester. And let me just clarify that there is no surprise among scholars that women opposed the vote. It took more than 75 years in the U.S. for the 19th Amendment, which, by the way, does not give women the right to vote. It keeps states from using sex to disqualify women from voting. That's actually what the 19th Amendment does. It keeps, just like the 15th Amendment made it where you couldn't use race to disqualify former slaves from voting. That's what the 19th Amendment does. And there is no surprise among scholars. We know that women oppose the vote. We know that men opposed, obviously oppose the vote. There are lots of reasons for this, but I think it's important to note that there are some consistencies among the women that were most vocal 
in what we call the antis. And they were women of a particular race and class who were more privileged in society, who had, who worked to protect that privilege. So let me just throw that out there. As I said, I'm for people who didn't realize that there were people who opposed the vote. I mean, that's why it was a fight for suffrage because it Mm. took 75 years, you know, this vote, this fight. But let me also say that from the very beginning, when the constitution of the U.S. was first written, women already were speaking up and saying, you need to specifically include us in this for citizenship. And Abigail Adams actually wrote that to her husband, John Adams, saying, don't, you know, remember the ladies is what she said. She said, because we know men are tyrants. So remember the ladies. And so this is, yes, there were women who opposed the vote, but from the very beginning, women also realized the cost of being excluded from the constitution as citizens with full equal rights as men. So I'll stop there. Yeah, I just, and I just want to add, I think this is a very strange argument because every social change has the majority of people disagreeing with it at the beginning. If people hadn't disagreed with it, we wouldn't need to change anything. So it's just it's just a strange argument. Can I yeah. ask one follow-up question, Beth, if you don't mind? What sure. is what was some of the reasoning behind women not wanting yeah. you know, the right to vote? Because I just think yeah, it's so yeah. counterintuitive. What what am I missing here? Well, I mean, think about it. You know, I think one of the most recent parallels is the Equal Rights Amendment, and which was failed because women women fought against it. I mean, it's actually a really fascinating historically time to watch. And, and I actually, I, I still, I find some of the videos with Phyllis Schlafly and her conversations with the women. I mean, they're just so fascinating. Um, but nonetheless, but a lot of the reasons that women spoke against the vote were reasons that women spoke against the ERA. Some of them argued that we women will lose privilege. I mean, that's one of the arguments that women will lose privilege. Women will have to serve on juries. Women will have to serve in the military, women will have to have the full responsibilities of being a citizen if women are given the full responsibilities of being a citizen. And so um, so this is one of it is that women are like, hey, we're good. We don't have to do these things. Why should we be made to do them? So that's a, and if you watch, that's a, was a big part of Phyllis Schlafly's argument against the ERA. And it's what we see come up with these women in the late 19th and early 20th century. Some of it too, we have to know that a lot of the antis, although they are spread throughout the U.S., there are a lot of arguments coming from the South. And with the South, those arguments are tied to racism. Uh, You know, it's a lot easier to keep, if you let everybody vote, then everybody gets to vote. But if you keep vote reserved to only a particular group in society, which is white men, then that means that White women can influence those white men, but people of color don't have the right to vote. And so, I mean, that there is some racism. Now, there's also racism. I don't want to, there were a lot of racist women in the suffrage movement itself who are fighting for the vote. That's actually a, a very, so mm. it's not, it's on both sides. Mm. Racism is deep on both sides here. But some women argued that women didn't have the education to vote, which 
for many of them was probably true. And they were worried about working class women. They were saying like, hey, we're educated. We can do it. But these working class women, I mean, if all women get the right to vote, that means all women get the right to vote. And there's going to be the type of people we don't want voting. The ones who don't have the intellectual or the mental capacity to be able to vote. Some women just said, we don't really need the vote. They were like, all this is going to do is double the amount of the electorate. And so how is that really going to change anything? I mean, this is kind of a strange argument too, but it's, you know, it's like, how is this going to change anything? And then also a lot of the antis, they were like, hey, women aren't going to vote as a block. So it's stupid to talk about the women's vote. They were right on this. Women don't vote as a block. Men don't vote as a block. We vote as individuals. Mm -hmm. And so they were correct about that. But some of them argued, they were like, look, you're saying that if women get the right to vote, it's going to fix all social ills. And they were like, that's not true because women don't vote as a block. That They're actually right about that. I think the most, fa- I'll tell you one more. One of the most fascinating reasons that women voted, didn't want the right to vote is because they argued that the vote had corrupted men. Being in politics made men corrupt. And so if women got in politics, they would become corrupt too. So, and isn't doesn't that kind of go along with the angel of the house ideal oh, in, in yeah. the Victorian era where you know women were these domestic goddesses and they were kind of protected from the outside world so that they could keep the home into this beautiful place of refuge for the men and and that you know this whole domestic goddess sort of ideal was born yeah. in in the Victorian era and so if if women vote then suddenly the home is no longer this place of refuge because now she has been corrupted by politics too. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there was the argument that women could influence the men to vote correctly because that Mm -hmm. works really well. Well, that's really informative. Thank you for sharing that. All right, let's keep moving on then. We're 30 seconds in. Here we go. So that's very puzzling. So I looked at the, the, what was going on at the time and the debate, you see the vote meant something very different. You know, my, my, my female students are like, well, if I didn't have the vote, you know, I would feel like I was in full citizen. But that's not what it meant back then. Back then, only landowners, at the beginning, only landowners had the vote. That meant, remember, since, the, since we had home industries, you know, family industries, if you were the, a homeowner, you also were a business owner. Right. And so it was assumed that if you were a landowner, you had experience running a business. And so you weren't just, you know, an average person on the street, you were someone who would run a business and had a lot of responsibility. I want it to wasn't only in. women who done. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> this is really hard. This is really hard. So I understand where perhaps this is coming from for her. In the US, when the constitution was written, the the people who had the right to vote were freeholders. And they were, but they were men of a particular age, of a particular faith, Catholics mostly couldn't vote. Jewish people couldn't vote. People of color obviously couldn't vote. All of these restrictions. And then they also were freeholders, which they did argue that people who owned property had a more of a stake in the social order, so to speak. But at the same time, people saw this as problematic from the very beginning. And shortly after, dates uh, shortly after the the, um, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, everything, states tried to rewrite this and make it not just freeholders, but just simply people who had a certain level of income, property, owner, you know, ownership. And then also at the same time, there were women actually were voting 
um, from the very early times in the U.S. uh, because a lot of it was about states' rights. And so, like, for example, there's actually a funny clause in New Jersey, right, um, in the late 18th century where they extended the vote to all inhabitants and women got to vote. Um, and women did vote. Um, That's my state. All right. Yeah, Go yeah. New Jersey. Oh, there you are. Yeah. They later <laughs> changed it. But I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Wyoming gave women the right to vote very early on. Utah gave women the right to vote early on. Colorado gave women the right to vote. I mean, actually, by the time we get to the, the early 20th century, there are already states that have given women the right to vote, at least in some capacity. And so this is, it's not it's not just, it's not like we went from one system to another system. Um, that, that's not a, that's not an accurate, that's not an accurate assessment of what's going on. Uh, because there were individuals who were already voting and that the property were the, standards for who could vote based upon property were already shifting. There was seen that there were problems with this. Also, there were women who were heads of household. This is something. And so, you know, this, this is not a monolithic, you know, like a shift from one philosophical ideology to another philosophical ideology. It's much more complex than that. And the reality is, is that women were voting already during this whole time period. So. Okay. That's really helpful to know. Whenever I have historians, you know, of your caliber on, it's always such a reminder that that these things are so much more complicated than it was this way. And then like a light switch, all of a sudden we had this new thing. It, yeah. It's just way more gray, it seems like so often. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and as I said, I think we should note that one of the reasons this even becomes an issue is because in the 18th century, with the rise of democracy in the U.S. and with France, think about this is also going on in France, we have constitutions being written that are defining citizenship. And this is actually a new thing in history, you know, this defining. And so then it becomes who gets to be a citizen. And from and women are weighing in this conversation from the very beginning. And so when, when Nancy Piercy says this isn't about citizenship, that's actually Actually not true. Women from the very beginning knew it was about citizenship. And that's what their argument was, is that we should be fully citizens alongside men. So it's it's interesting how historically it was often the the areas of the world where you were forging new lands kind of thing. So you had the West. You said that, you know, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, women were voting already. And yes, um, yeah. The, the the women in the British Empire who had the vote first were were New Zealand, which in in yeah. eighteen eight really early like eighteen ninety three well, or something like that. Yeah, but but they and they were and because this was like a new land, obviously there's indigenous issues, and I don't mean to hurt those. Right. But there, yeah, you know, they you didn't get the right to vote. Yeah, right. And then in Canada we had Manitoba, and so in in places where women were totally involved in building homes and in the prairies and in, in land that hadn't been occupied except by indigenous people. And obviously we took over those lands, but that's where you got the vote. It, it was, it wasn't necessarily in the big cities. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll throw out two things there with that. First of all, with Wyoming, that's actually one of the ways that they recruited people to come is they were like, Hey women, you not only can homesteader, you can come out here and own property, but the other thing is in England, actually, women did have the right to vote in England until the 1832 reform bill. And mm-hmm. so that it went backwards. And so, I mean, this is kind of, I mean, there weren't, it's because in England, there was no consistency, but it wasn't written in that a sex was a disqualifier from voting until 1832. 
So again, as I said, this is, these are conscious decisions being made to write women out and with women, with women not being completely written out and with women always in that argument saying why they should have the right to vote as well as people of color also making those arguments. Mm. So anyway. Love that. Thank you. That's really helpful. Zach Lambert's here. He says, hey, Beth, Sheila, and Tim, thank you for doing this. Grateful for all three of y'all and your courage, wisdom, expertise. Zach, great to have you. Thanks for watching. All right, friends, let's keep going. And who didn't have the vote? A lot of people didn't have the vote. So women didn't feel, you know, set out. You know, they didn't feel like, oh, I'm I'm especially unprivileged because I don't have the vote. Nobody had the vote except the landowner. You know, if you were not, if, if you were a servant, if you were a hired hand, if you were a working class person, if, if you were the extended family, you know, if, if you were not responsible for the home, the household, you know, it was called the household back then, you know, you didn't expect I have to, have to the jump vote. in again. I'm so sorry. Please don't <laughs> apologize. You're to- this is why we do I, this. Please go, th- this go, is, go for it. This is really hard. So I want to say, again, make that emphasis that it was freeholders who could vote. The household status for voting in the U.S. is 1951, the head of household. That's where we actually get that phrase. Now, I could go back to the medieval and I could talk about that we did have household, but that it's a different, anyway. So I'm just going to keep it to the right here with the U.S. I think it's important to note that the head of household was put in there for single people with dependents so that they could claim those tax, they could get the the mm. tax write-offs. And so that's so I think we need to clarify what head of household in the US actually was introduced into the tax law for. And so anyway, there you are. Just going to throw that out that's, there. That's very <laughs> helpful to know because I I honestly this is clearly not my expertise and I wouldn't even think about that. I didn't realize that even this terminology is somewhat more recent, you know, historically speaking. Well, so. it's, you know, I don't want to say, I mean, household isn't more recent, but it's, again, there, there, I think there is an impression that's given and with Piercy here and with her audience that there was like a nuclear household, you know, little house on the prairie ideal in the 19th century. And that we moved from that household vote to whatever we have today where everybody's all about individualism. And that is simply not true. That is not historically accurate at all. So that again, that is so helpful for me because you're right. That's how I kind of perceive this kind of world and what they're advocating for. It's like, right. well, back then we had this nuclear family unit that was like this thing. And then, you know, the liberation of whatever happened, you know, feminism or whatever. And then the whole thing got destroyed. Right. And, you know, Western civilization is falling. That's kind of how they All thread fallen. some of those needles. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So it's helpful to have you be like, well, again, like there's parts that maybe could be true in the language, but it didn't mean what we think it's how they're right. maybe mm-hmm. representing it now, for example. So. That's great. All right, let's keep going. And by the way, it's interesting. Even the word family was usually used for the household. They used the word family for anyone that you were responsible for, even if you were not biologically related. Why would it be important in a book about toxic masculinity and, and, and you know, the, the misconceptions surrounding that term to include a section about women's suffrage? Yeah, so when the, when the women's vote came up, the debate was not over men's vote versus women's vote. It was household vote versus individual vote. And if you read the anti, anti-suffragists back then, many of them said explicitly, you know, we want household suffrage because otherwise there's just the individual in the state. You know, we don't want that kind of individualism. We want the basic unit of society to remain the household. 
we don't want the basic unity unit of society to be the individual. Wow. So that was their argument. It was a political philosophy. I see a hand raised. What is the basic unit of society? <laughs> it's so I'll, fun I'll, watching Beth's expressions. <laughs> I'm I trying, feel like I actually want raising I, my hand, you know. <laughs> You're the professor. <laughs> I don't have a poker face. I'm so sorry. You're so great. let me ju- let me just say that she is correct about the anti-literature. In fact, one of the links that I gave you, Tim, for this goes to the it has a lot of primary sources of this anti anti-suffrage literature. And one of the arguments that they did make was that the vote, that if, that they wanted the vote to be representative, again, of the household, their their husbands spoke for the household. Why do they need the right to vote? This is going to take women out into the public sphere. They also have a whole lot of things, like some of the images show men like doing dishes and holding the baby and saying, my wife votes. And now, you know, I'm stuck with all of this. I mean, you thought we invented that stuff in the seventies and the eighties, that type of, but anti-feminist thing, but no, that's going on from the very beginning. So I think, so it is true that they did make that argument. But again, when I said you have to think about who's making that argument, and these are women who come from more privileged households, who have the privilege of not having to work. Many of them have had the privilege of actually getting to go to college and are educated. They get to do a lot of stuff outside the household um, because it is of their class. They have this privilege. And so they're like, we get to do all of this when we don't have the responsibilities, why do we want to shift this dynamic? But the problem is, and this is one of the things that women who, especially women of color, I mean, I strongly encourage you to go read Mary Church Terrell, but, you know, argued they were like, not everybody is from that place of privilege. Mm-hmm. And that those women have no say over what happens to them. They don't get to stay. They're already out in the world. I mean, they don't, they're, many of them, they don't have, stable, they don't have stable male figures. Some of them that do, they're all working. I mean, it's not representative of the working class lifestyle. And I think that, you know, that's, I put one of the links, one of the suggestions I also gave you on that list I sent for this Mm -hmm. of resources is I sent the book, The Five, which my students love. I always teach it. It's about the women who are killed by Jack the Ripper. So my students love it for that, but also because it shows the conditions that women lived under in the 19th century who had absolutely no legal protection. That is really helpful to make sense of things because I've noticed that sometimes in these spaces, you have this, what seems like a paradox of people, maybe like Ali Stuckey or Candace Owens, who are on a platform saying, you know, good women are at home and like making babies, essentially. That's like the highest calling, but they have very lucrative careers making a lot of money and are probably in some cases even the breadwinner. And I'm like, how does, I don't understand like how this works. So again, your explanation kind of helps to unpack some of that and how those things can can live simultaneously. Yeah, just go read the five. If anybody wants to know what women's lives were like who were not in these privileged classes, just go read the five. It's really good. I'll make sure folks, if you're listening either on the podcast later on or right now during the live, that we have those uh, links in the show notes, both on YouTube and on on podcast. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll keep moving. The society. You know, is it of household? Is it the bare, you know, isolated, disconnected individual? And they are so right on with that prediction of what would happen. Exactly. And of course, people say, well, why did the vote finally pass then? Well, so it right took on. a long time, almost a century. You know how they, you know how, why women were finally won over? By the temperance movement. The mm-hmm. Francis Willard, who was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, 
Nazis feel that women would have more power over against their drunken husbands if they had the vote. She argued that women had no recourse if their husbands were drinking away the family money and living, leaving the family destitute, if they were coming home drunk at night and beating the wife and kids. So wait, temperist movement is, is what? Like alcohol prohibition yeah. stuff? Yeah, yeah, uh, prohibition. In other words, you have to almost back up a little bit to understand even why that was such an issue. As men, as men became more secular, traditional male vices became worse. In other words, in the 19th century, there was a huge increase in fighting, gambling. Can I pause for and add my own? Uh, yeah, I was trying to hold it. I, I want to jump in on this one. Oh my gosh. Can I just say I one brief thing and I'll, I'll let you guys have it. I'm right now I'm going through Beaver in the Heartland about the KKK in, in like that, that time. And like the stories of all of these white Protestant Christian men who were claiming and trying to fight against, you know, alcohol and had prohibition behind the scenes were all drinking. It was like a, 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 a very open secret, you know, that they all liked their liquor. So it's just interesting to hear even that side of things, how it's like, well, I'm not sure if it was about them becoming more secular necessarily. So anyway, so we, can I thought. tell a really funny story? Sure. So the way we got the vote in the U.S., it all came down to Nashville. If you don't know anything about it's a really dramatic story. My students love it. But they, the people, those for suffrage and those against suffrage, the antis, they all actually camped out at the same hotel, the Hermitage Hotel, which you can go to, go have tea. I went with my sister this past summer. And you can see the Capitol out right across from it. And the antis, those against suffrage, they actually booked out one of the top floor, one of the higher floors in the hotel. And it became the Jack Daniels suite. And so the way that they tried to get people to vote against the vote for women was by giving them free liquor. And so that's the antis. So, I mean, there is, I, we've got to, and I, I also want to jump in about Willard too. It is true that the Christian temperance union played a significant role in the suffrage movement. It is true that Francis Willard argued that because women had no other recourse to protect themselves, they needed to get the right to vote. This is true. Women had no legal recourse to protect themselves. And she said it got even worse as alcohol became cheaper and more prevalent. I mean, not because it was cheaper. And so this working class. So those things are true. We do have, as with the market economy, with cheaper alcohol, we do have a lot of, you know, bars opening up. No, Mel Weiss did not get worse. Male vice just became more public in these bars. And we also see that women who were empowered through education and also this belief that they had the right to influence and be involved in politics begin to speak out against this male vice. So the thing that empowers will that empowers the temperance movement is you know, essentially the suffrage movement. And so, I mean, it's not like all of a sudden women decided to vote for the vote so they could protect the home. That's, that's a very simplistic understanding. I would point people towards Corinne McConaughey. She has a, a really fantastic book on a reappraisal of suffrage in the U.S. And she argues that it was actually a transformation of politics because the way women got the vote was through a lot of through making coalitions. And so it, so there is no one reason why women succeeded. There's no one reason why women succeeded. It was because they were really successful in making coalitions. And so I, I, want to put that out there. That's a better way of looking at this. 
Very helpful. Yeah, and that was that was definitely true in New Zealand too. The New Zealand uh, model was really interesting because they had such they. Yeah, with politics. But, you know, my, my great-great-grandmother was one of the founding members of the WCTU in London, England, because uh, my great-great-grandfather was total drunk, and he got over it later in his life. But, you know, the, the, the suffrage movement and the temperance movement, which it seemed like Alex Clark wasn't familiar with, which I find interesting, but it was so tied to women's dignity and women's worth because abuse was so rampant and, like, incredible poverty was so rampant because the men were drinking away the... Well, yeah, I mean, and then you combine this with Josephine Butler's work in London at the same time, trying to get some of the terrible prostitution laws off the books. And so she ended up working with the temperance union and with the suffragettes. And it was all a big coalition in London. But I don't understand why Nancy is even talking about this because this disproves her point. And that's the big issue that I'm having because she is admitting, and she goes on to admit further in this clip, how bad men were treating women and that that's why women needed the vote. And yet the reason that she ends up saying women shouldn't have gotten the vote is because we need to go back to a time when we have just men vote, because then they are going to think more about their families and they're going to be more altruistic. Well, guess what? They weren't. That's why women wanted the vote. Like, I, I don't even get what she's saying here. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm your entire argument. I, 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 I agree in the sense, I mean, because the temperance movement, you know, women had less access to property. They had less access to legal rights. Women had, you know, they had less access. They had very few recourses. You know, there's a lot of problems with Frances Willard. There was some deep racism within her also. Um, There's a very famous incident with her with Ida B. Wells and where Ida B. Wells calls her out for it. And Frances Willard actually never apologizes really for it. So so there's a lot of problems also with the temperance movement, Mm -hmm. at least the key leaders. As with the suffrage movement, there are some very racist women, you know, Alice Paul in there, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, et cetera. But I think we have to realize we again have to play who is speaking and the women who are speaking are from positions of power and privilege and in a lot of and so the antis and a lot of their arguments for and against each other actually were excluding the voices of ordinary women and women of color and and so I think it's always important that we remember that the vote even the discussions about the vote excluded a lot of women who who had no legal recourse to anything. Beth, I really appreciate that you're willing to call bar, uh, balls and strikes as we kind of navigate what, I mean, for people like me, we're just so ignorant on, and I really appreciate that. I think it just uh, demonstrates that you take this stuff really seriously, that you really want to know what's going on, you know? And so I think it's really helpful. So thank you. All right. This is great. Let's let's keep going. I'm let's learning so much. Let's try to so get much. through it all. We'll yeah, we're, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. This is how these lives always go. We have all the stuff planned and the conversation takes on a really good life of its own. And that's what's happening here. Happy to have you guys on board. Drinking, crime, prostitution, the number of brothels mushroomed. Sometimes the individual fact can help. So in 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there's a reason there was a temperance movement. Alcoholism was, a, you know, public alcoholism was a problem the way, you know, drunk uh, addicts are today. You walk down you know, San Francisco or someplace. Like the and, fentanyl crisis today was really like the alcohol crisis then. Yeah, you see, yeah, today you see people, you know, drug addicts on the streets. Well, back then people were falling down drunk in the, you know, in the alleys and so on. That still happens and pretty so, often. 
the, temp- yeah, the Tempest View movement was really about trying to protect women who had nothing legal recourse, you know, right. ag- against drunken husbands. And so that's how they finally won the this vote. This is undermining when her they said, argument, though. That's what I don't understand. Sheila, are you saying essentially that like what Nancy is advocating for is going back to a time when these things were a problem and then the solution well, to that gives women the vote, but she wants that erased to go back to that well, time that saying, caused the problem? She's saying, she's saying the reason that we need men to have the vote is because when men vote on behalf of the household, they are forced to take on the protector role and they are forced to think of mm. other people. And so this puts men into a category of being the protector for others. And now she's explaining the reason that women wanted the vote was because men weren't protecting them. So, like, I I just think this whole thing undermines her argument, but whatever. That actually unlocks a a connection for me. I think I'm understanding. I want to repeat it back to make sure I'm I'm catching the logic here for the audience as well. So, essentially, one of the maybe things underneath of this is that by giving other people, in this case women, the vote, it's Mm -hmm. taking away the responsibility that men have to protect their households and to be a good, upstanding, virtuous man. But we had an example of what that was like, and it didn't work out at all how she's talking about. So going back to that is only going to potentially exasperate the problem and take away the rights of women who are not in privileged spaces, who need that voting power to be able to have a say in our democracy. Is that kind of the vibe? Am I threading that needle? Yeah, I I would call it the I'm going to take my ball and go home political philosophy, which is what sounds like she's arguing. So she's arguing that we want men and that's what her whole book is about, how we want men to be virtuous. We want men to be protectors. We want men to look after people. But it's hard for men to do that in today's culture because we've become this individualized culture where we don't value men's protection the way that we used to when we had this this family household vote. But essentially what she's saying is men are only going to be protectors if they get to be in charge. And so if they don't get to be in charge, they're going to take their ball and go home. And and so we need to put men back in these positions again. And I, I just think it's a very strange argument. Okay. Understand. That, that's very helpful. All right. We'll keep going then. Francis Willard actually renamed the vote the ballot for home protection. That's true. So they didn't win it on... Uh, on on feminist grounds, the feminists were arguing things like autonomy and individual rights. That didn't win over the women. The women were won over when it was labeled the ballot of home protection. I've never heard any of this That's in my entire true. life. I've n- okay, it's not true. I'm, I'm well, here for it. Go I mean, ahead. Again, I'm just saying that this is this idea that women were always fighting for the vote, fighting for citizenship. They recognized that from the very, very beginning. This is not like all of a sudden we have these you know, it's not like Frances Willard comes along and suddenly women are like, oh, because it's about the home, we're going to get involved now. That's that's not, that's some of the story, but that is not all of the story. And so I just think we got to be really careful with that. I, I do think though that what Frances Willard did is that she made, because she already had a base, she built her base in, hey, we've got to do something about protecting women who have no legal recourse. Mm -hmm. And then she used that, you know, fighting against alcohol. And so she built this base fighting against alcohol. And then she said, hey, y'all, you know, what would actually be really helpful is if we could actually vote against this, Mm -hmm. against alcohol, and women could be a part of making this change. And her base was like, yes. (laughs) So, you know, it's, I think it's, I think we have to understand what was going on here. It's not exactly the way that Nancy presents it, which makes it sound like that women decide to get involved because it's about defending the household. That's that's not exactly it. That's very helpful. 
never heard any of this in my life. So knowing this background does help us understand that there were huge mental shifts happening. So today when we think, oh, well, if you don't have the vote, you know, you're not a true, you know, you're not a full citizen. That's not the way it was thought of. In fact, in fact, there was another turning point that was very important. Universal male suffrage. When you went from only the landowner, the head of the household holding, holding the vote to universal male suffrage, that came first. Well, all of a sudden you had men who were uneducated, drunk, you know. Women are saying, wait a minute, these guys vote and I can't? Right, yeah. Yeah, that would be frustrating. You know, people who, who had you know, no, civic, no civic spirit and, and, and Christian, you know, women will say, so, look, you know, we're okay, going to vote. I, I, I promise I'm going to stop Tim and let you get through. I think it's really interesting how Nancy Great. phrased that because the way she phrased that is actually very similar to the very racist responses of like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who actually was like, are you kidding me that you're giving black men the right to vote over people like me. And so it's interesting that Nancy uses language very similar to that to say, this is what made women frustrated. There, there, that is true. That racist element that said, Hey, I can't believe you're giving these people the right to vote over me. And that actually did play out in some people's motivations. Mm. I also think I, this point I've got to I have it up here. I pulled it up here just a minute ago. Can I read Abigail Adams? short statement that she sent to her husband about, I think it's important because what Nancy keeps saying here, Nancy Piercy keeps saying here is that this isn't about citizenship. Yeah, It was always about citizenship. So, I mean, this is what, so Abigail Adams writes this to her husband on March 31st, 1776. John Adams is at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And as we know, he's later a pre- one of the early presidents of the U.S. And she says, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power in the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation, end quote. Wow. Um, I mean, I think that pretty much shows that what, Nancy, preach. <laughs> what Nancy Piercy is saying is simply not true. Women knew what was at stake. And they understood that they were not being written in as full citizens. Go read Mary Wollstonecraft. Go read in England. I mean, these women are making parallel arguments when they are getting written out of the laws. This isn't women understood it was about citizenship. And they argued that they should have the same type of citizenship rights as men. Powerful. And that's what's, and that's what's so strange in her book, too. Like, I know we're listening to this what she said on this podcast, but in her book, when she talks about women's suffrage, she talks about it almost entirely from the anti-suffragette like, like side. She doesn't give the reasons that people were, were really wanting the vote. It's very, it's a very strange, it's very, very strange. Yeah. Before we move on, this is very important. Breaking news. Sheila, your hair looks absolutely <laughs> fab today. Love the color and how it matches with Rebecca. Cause I know before we started recording, you're like, this is a, this was a bad time to dye my hair with a streak of blue in it, but there you go. The, the audience loves it. Here I am. I'm trying to I'm trying to be like respond to a conservative when I dyed my hair blue. But I, I have a grandbaby coming in the next few days and I wanted the cool, the cool grandma shots. So I love yeah. it. Mission accomplished. Okay. We're getting through. This is so good. I love this this video. This is awesome. The audience is loving it. 
We have 130 people watching live with us. It's great. Let's keep going. And you're letting these secular guys who are alcoholics or, you know, fighting, drinking, visiting prostitutes, and they have a right to vote, and I don't? Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket. Let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's thesrf.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. Hi. My name is Angie. I live in southern New Hampshire, and I am a monthly donor to the New Evangelicals. I decided to donate because I've experienced the wonderfully supportive T&E Facebook community. I have been deconstructing and decolonizing my faith, and it's been a tremendously lonely journey because I don't have anyone else to talk to about this. When I joined the T&E Facebook group, I felt so welcomed and included, and I have thought many times I have found my people, and this just feels wonderful. We have all had different experiences with evangelicalism. We are all at different stages in examining our faith traditions. Everyone in the group doesn't share the same spirituality, but the thing that we do share is that we are of one mind and being supportive of each other. I believe in the work that TNE is doing. I want others to experience this too. Thanks so much. So, so we, we get women's suffrage now looking forward all these years later where we are now. Do you believe that women's suffrage has been a net negative or a net positive for society? Yeah, that's a big, that's a big, that's a big question. I think it's been a net negative to go from the household vote to the individual vote. Let's just stop that. I think we almost need to replay that again, because this is the clip that Alex Clark used in this reel. Mm-hmm. To highlight what it was going to be about, she put in the description, you know, that women's suffrage was a net negative. Like this is the yeah. money quote right here. Yep. That what she's arguing is that women's vote was a net negative to society. And I think it should be important to highlight that she just did describe how part of the reason why that happened was the temperance movement and alcohol and abusive mm-hmm. husbands. So even with that in the back end, yeah. right? For her, she says that it's still a net negative. I'll play the clip again, and then we'll we can respond to it. Yeah. We have a right to vote, and I don't. So, so we we get women's suffrage now. Looking forward, all these years later, where we are now, do you believe that women's suffrage has been a net negative or a net positive for society? Yeah, that's a big that's a big that's a big question. I think it's been a net negative to go from the household vote to the individual vote. You know that shit. 
Do you think that is, um, I mean, she seems to clarify like what she's talking about by going from household to the individual, though. I, I don't know if that's maybe if Nancy was, is watching this, maybe she'd be like, well, that's what I meant by, you know, it being a net negative. Is that where we move from this um, f- familial family unit model to like the individual autonomy model. And that's what's given us all the problems. I don't know. I've been been arguing with her and her proxies on Twitter all weekend about this, but basically what she's saying is I'm not philosophically against women voting. I'm just philosophically against the means by which women would vote. There is no difference. It's a distinction without a difference. I don't think it matters because I think what she's arguing here isn't a historical reality. The shift Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like we went fully from, I mean, I think this is a, again, I think this is a misunderstanding of household vote. I mean, it gives us this image of this idyllic nuclear family out on the prairie where everyone's concerned about each other. I mean, clearly this is not what's going on in the um, 19th and the 20th century. I mean, one of the reasons why women are very much, I mean, if you listen to Abigail Adams, she said, remember, you know, men are tyrants. We need women need to have these legal protections. And and this is clearly and and you know, the I always start off my suffrage class with the first third of the class is on the conditions of women's lives. And that's what we do is we talk about the conditions of women's lives in the and we we intersect that with with race. And so like Mary Church Terrell, this isn't an exact quote, but she says, yeah, white women need the vote, but black women needed it even more um, because of the conditions of their lives. They needed to have that legal empowerment. And so I think what Nancy is, you know, and if you think about, you know, black people, even if she's correct about this household vote unit thing. I mean, this excludes all black people. It excludes Native American people. It excludes households that don't fit that type of, I mean, is she, I mean, you know, single women, women were head of household at this time, did have their own. And so, I mean, it's just, I, I don't understand if she's arguing about the shift from household vote, women were voting before this. So you can't, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense in the model that she is talking about. It's not a historical reality. And it's also is a, it seems to be rooted in not just patriarchy, but also in racism. And I, I think that's so, you know, thinking about as me, as a privileged white woman, my life I get to do things because of my privilege and I need Mm. to recognize that and that, that it's not all about me getting to keep what I have. It's also about how can I make sure that other people have similar opportunities. It's, It's a very narrow perspective from which she is talking. And it frightens me that a lot of women think this is reasonable. Yeah. And again, I, I think it's just really, really important to remember that when people make the argument that we need to go back to the household vote, they are saying we need to go back to a time when only rich white men voted. Yeah, that's pretty and much we it. Simply, I mean, yeah. We simply can't let people get away with that because that is what they are saying. And that's yes. not okay. And again, we, the reason that she's saying this, it's part of a wider argument that she's making in her book which is that we want to think of men as the protectors, as the ones in charge, as the ones who are, who are leading women, but they're doing so benevolent, benevolently. 
it, it, it's it's a lot like, do you remember Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem in like the late 1890s, The White Man's Burden? It's a horrible poem, <laughs> but it's it's like, it's how hard it is to be a white man and have to civilize the world because the world is so terrible. And so like, look at us, like how hard this is for us to go in and, and have to work. And that's very much the feel that you're getting is, you know, we need to let men, men run things because this is so difficult for them. And we need to realize what a burden it is for them to have to think about everybody else. And we need to support them in that. And that's what she's, what she's trying to argue. Yeah, I mean, just to echo what Christy said here, that Nancy's not alone, not alone voice on this right now. There's a whole generation of young women right. looking to reverse the rights that we were granted. That's completely correct. I mean, the trad wife movement is growing. And mm-hmm. honestly, this turning point space, it seems to be embracing this anti-suffrage perspective. I actually have a clip we'll share later of Jason Whitlock at America Fest saying the same thing in front of 10,000 people to a round of applause. And this also does seem to have overlap, whether it's intentional or not. With like almost like this, you know, the soft, the like servant leadership model of the complementarian evangelical yeah. world, right? Like, well, men just need to sacrifice more and be a better leader. That that will solve the problem. And I definitely hear some overlaps and some echoes of that kind of thought in what it really would become if people got their way, taking away the right of women to vote and to shape our country in favor of men. We, oh, it's it, it's mind-boggling to me when we ha- hear people talk about the net gain or loss of women. I mean, first of all, this goes against the whole thing. Women don't vote as a block. I, I mean, there is no I mean, men don't vote as a block either. We never have, and so I mean, that is just mind-boggling to me. But I also think that people today don't realize how recently in the future that even though women got the right to vote in 1920, it's a hard fight for women of color to have equal access to the right to vote. That's not till the 1960s, till the Civil Rights Act. And if we also think about during that time, you know, it's not until after women are regular voters that we get to see some, and even then it's still a hard fight, but you think about women didn't have the right to take out credit in the same ways as men until the 1970s, that you could fire women for being pregnancy from their jobs until the 1960s with the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. You know, the reason that there was a lot of shift in these laws is because women were moved into places of leadership and because women were able to take advantage. So it's like, you know, and if you go down and you talk about the shifts in education law and the shifts in things that are better for the family, a lot of these happened once we moved women into these types of leadership positions. They had a seat at the table and they began to also put out their, you know, how do things impact women? I mean, we know what happens when there are no women at the table. And I mean, just go look at the Southern Baptist world. Yeah. yeah, So, I mean, this is, it's mind boggling to me, I have, I'm going to have to jump out of here too. Are we almost to the end of that? Did yeah, we, make we have it like, we, we, have like two minutes, we have like one minute left. Okay, let I'll let you finish it. Gonna... We got to hear that her, her end. Yeah, okay, let, so let, let me, me finish it before I, have I say my last thing. Fine, last <laughs> clip. Here we go. And again, uh, Beth, I really appreciate you making on such short notice time out of your busy day to respond to this. It is so helpful. It's great. And friends, just to reiterate, Best book is out now, Making a Biblical Womanhood. It is a great book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a great audio book as well. So pick it up wherever you can. Okay, let me pull this final clip here, and then we'll. Me and Sheila are going to take over here and talk about some other. Yeah, stuff. I want to so hear here, the rest of it. So <laughs> right, here we go. <laughs> so men were basically let off the hook. They were no longer responsible for the common good. Now, to me, this is the most compelling argument for why women's suffrage may have been a mistake. Way more than women being more likely to vote left. Oh, 
What I usually hear when people are talking about this is that is the argument they bring up. Well, look how this was a mistake because women are just more emotional. We're not capable of being rational. And so because of that reason, we are more susceptible to, to leftist policies. But and while there is an argument for that, I do, I see that. But I'm sorry, I have to pause here. I, I have to say just one thing. I cannot, um, Alex is, I think she's like in her early 20s. I don't think she's married. I don't see her ring on her finger. And like the fact that she can say that while talking about like people who are like her and herself that will, you know, women are just more emotional and we're, we're more susceptible to let let this policies is like mind blowing to me. Like it is a mind numbing thing to have someone say that about themselves. I, I, I don't know what to say. Oh, no, I, I mean, if you look at why women voted against suffrage and were worked against suffrage in the 19th and early 20th century, some of them did make a very similar argument. That women don't have the mental capacity to do this. I, I mean, it is, it's, it's mind boggling, but it is obviously what they have been taught to believe about themselves. And with having this belief, it also then in some ways enables these women, enables women to claim privileges mm-hmm. that they don't do these. And now, as I said, I think the belief is honest here. Um, it's just the self-reflection on what does this actually mean? So anyway, I want to put that, I don't want to discredit. I mean, I honestly believe she probably hears women say that and they probably really believe this. Yeah. Yeah. So she's giving in this bit, she's giving two reasons why she thinks women's suffrage was a mistake, right? One is that we're, we're too emotional. And it's interesting. The only reason that women are more more emotional is that we've labeled um, anger, not an emotion. (laughs) That's why we think men aren't emotional. But anyway, and then, then there's this other argument that we need to go back to household vote. So she's giving two reasons here why, and she says it, women's suffrage was a mistake. And if you look at the comments on her Instagram reel that came out when that she first put that reel up over and over and over again, you saw women saying, oh yes, they think the vote for women was a mistake. There was a Mm -hmm. poll going that showed that, you know, hundreds of women thought that the vote for women was a mistake. And so this is what this podcast was saying. That's how she, like she called it women's suffrage was a mistake. That's the title of the podcast that Alex Clark put out. She put in the description, women's suffrage was a net negative. She put in the Instagram reel, that clip of Nancy Piercy saying it's net negative. And now she's on Twitter arguing with me saying we never said that. Yep. 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 All right. There are 30 seconds left in this clip. And then Beth, you're good to roll. Here we go. Also, what you're saying, I think it shows a bigger picture of how damaging this was into just it led into everything, how we we split up the family unit and all these other problems. I, I see it stemming from that one decision. We went from the idea that the family is an organic structure with a common good. And, you know, common good, of course, everyone benefits from the common good. You know, the good of the family benefits all of us. And it's the same with the church or any other social institution. The good of the whole, infl- you know, benefits all of us. All right. Well, there we go. That's, that, that's the final Can, point. It's all you. I have... I have two, yeah, I have two things to say that. First of all, justice benefits everybody. And I think one of the biggest lessons from actually the the black women activists in suffrage is the lift as we climb. Hmm. And by giving more people access to legal power and being able to have autonomy, it makes, it lifts all of us up. 
And, and so I, that's just seem that understanding seems so absent from this idea of this current anti-suffrage movement. And it, it's just, that actually is what terrifies me for our society. One of the women that we talk a lot about in my class is a woman named Safiya Dilip Singh, who is actually an activist in the UK. And she is a woman who the UK through under Queen Victoria, they actually robbed her of her home. Her father's land was taken away from him in India. He was a prince in India over a large territory. And she and her whole family was essentially grew up in some little bit of, you know, kind of house, house arrest, although that's not quite the word in the UK. And she came to a slow acknowledgement about what had happened to her and her family and what she chose to do with that after becoming aware of some pretty horrific conditions for immigrants in the UK is that she decided that the way to change society was to help provide more legal access to women and people of color. And she joined the the militant suffrage organization. She was there with the Pinkhursts and the window smashing campaigns and everything like that. And when she never had children, Part of that was because Queen Victoria discouraged her and her siblings from marrying um, white people because of racism. And so it's another whole horrible story. But she did have a goddaughter. And her goddaughter tells this really the story about she remembers every time that she was with Sophia. And Sophia lived actually outside of Hampton Court. She was also a person of privilege. It was, it, she had a very interesting story, but anyway, but as I said, was this Indian woman. And what Sophia told her goddaughter is she says, you are never, ever not to vote. You must promise me you don't know how far we've come. Mm-hmm. And when I hear women arguing against the vote, yeah, I think of Sophia Dilip Singh because they have forgotten how far we've come. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's terrifying. So thanks for having me and I'm going to jump out and I look forward to hearing Sheila continue on with this clip. So thank you so much. It was very nice meeting you. Beth, thank you. It was so great having you. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon for sure. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right, friends. Well, there you go. There's, there's one part of this down. Sheila, how are you doing? Can we just take a breather, a little inhale, exhale Ah! moment? I mean, it's (laughs) the first hour has flown by as it always has. And like I said, before we started recording, These long-form videos, I love doing them because we can really get in the weeds and kind of unpack claim by claim. Really quick, before we move on, a couple uh, announcements I want to say. Friends, thank you so much for being here and for watching this. We are a nonprofit organization. One of the reasons why I'm able to get stuff out this quickly, literally just a few days ago, I reached out to Sheila and then we got Beth involved, is because people donate to make this work possible. We hold space for thousands of people as they try and navigate a better path forward in their faith. And we do that completely paywall free. All of our Zoom groups, our private Facebook community, all of our content, our podcast is totally accessible to everyone because of the generosity of people like you. If you want to donate or give us a super chat, all donations are tax deductible if they're made inside the US and they go right to making this work possible. Also, if you like this live, feel free to share it on your social media to like the actual video and to subscribe to our channel. We do videos like this pretty often now, responding to all kinds of things. My last one was talking to Keith Giles about universalism. We talked with Pete Enns about deconstruction. We've had Dr. Jennifer Bird on before responding to sexuality. So we really try and make this a very wide uh, array of, of bringing on different scholars and different people with expertise to respond. 
to things that we see and we go, you know, maybe there's a better way forward in our faith. So like I said, all donations are tax deductible. They go right to making this work possible. Thank you for being here. So let's keep going. Let's keep diving in because okay. now, Sheila, we're going to get into kind of your expertise, right? Yes. Which is, yes. which is some of the claims that Nancy makes around marriage and how evangelical Christians tend to have the best marriages and maybe by proxy the best sex, et cetera. Anything mm-hmm. you want to preface or add before we start going through some of these clips? Um, again, I just I just want to put this back in the in the in the context of her overall argument that she's trying to make, which is that toxic masculinity is a thing. Okay, and 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 she's actually there are parts of her book and parts of this podcast even that were actually quite good and that I totally agreed with. Sure, I think it's almost like she doesn't agree with herself and she mm-hmm. doesn't understand or deliberately doesn't understand what she's what she's saying. Because her her argument is that toxic masculinity was a secular thing, not a Christian thing. So all of the things that we think of as toxic masculinity, they were coming through from the secular world. And it's actually Christians who are doing better. And we need to really support Christian men and call them to more. She does a good job of saying that we need to deal with abuse, etc. But her big overall argument is that Christian, evangelical, conservative Christian men do the best of everybody. And so we need to stop talking about Christian men as if they're terrible. And we need to instead emulate these Christian men in society. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to laugh. Christy goes, has she met John <laughs> Cooper from Skillet? <laughs> I'm sorry. John, I've reached out to John Cooper a few times. I actually have his book, uh, ironically, right here, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. So I, I do try and read people that I disagree with. I try and understand the arguments. And I've reached out to John to have him on the podcast. So John, if you're watching this, you're more than welcome to hop on. We'd love to talk to you. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a great summary of what's going on. And I want to reiterate to the audience, if you're just joining the live, first off, welcome. Number two, the goal of this is never to dehumanize the folks that we are critiquing. Nancy, Alex, et cetera, are made in the image of God, and we're not here to belittle them as people. If they're watching this, I hope that they know my door is always open. They can always reach out. We're always happy to have a good faith dialogue and really talk through these things. As I tell my audience often, we are on the same planet, okay? We're breathing the same air. We we are existing together. We have to make this stuff work, and we have to have this conversation. So, okay, I guess I'll you gave me a bunch of small clips to kind of knock yes. out. So yes. we'll just go from the top, and I'll, I'll follow your lead on where you want to go. Does that work for you? Okay. All right. Sure. Here we Let's go. Do it. Clip number one. Let's face it. When people complain that masculinity is toxic, they often point to evangelical men as their prime example. But social science debunks that stereotype. Research shows that committed Christian men who attend church regularly test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. In fact, they don't want you to know this, but Christianity has the power to overcome toxic behavior in men and reconcile the sexes, an unexpected finding that has stood up to rigorous empirical testing. Okay, so claim is that, hey, you've heard that there is toxic masculinity in evangelical spaces. But I'm telling you that the empirical data that's subbed to rigorous testing says that's actually not true. The floor is yours. Okay. And this is and this is the big thing that that I want people to get is that this is the claim. Empirical evidence. And she talks so much about how studies show, studies show, studies show. So what did we do? We actually looked at the studies. And we've done a deep dive into her research and the claims that she's making. And I would say that they are half true. Hmm. but true not in the way that she is saying them. And maybe we'll play a couple more clips and I'll get into some of why, but I wanted I wanted that to set the stage. She's claiming this is based in evidence. Okay, sounds good. We are consistently told that 
evangelical Christian men are dangerous, that they are oppressive patriarchs prone to abuse, but you actually say that the science proves otherwise. I was as surprised as anyone because like everyone else, I've read the accusations. In fact, it was easy to find them online, but I'll give you just one. So this is the, a quote from the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. In the church to movement, would that be like all the, the Hillsong pastors that were outed, all that, there was like that whole slew of just a ton of pastors all of a sudden? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Me Too, the Me Too moniker, you know, worked really well. So they came up with church too. And, and so the surprising thing is that the social scientists were listening to these accusations and saying, but where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote about half a dozen, a dozen or so studies in which social scientists, so these would be psychologists and sociologists, uh, did the studies and said, actually, <laughs> Christian men who attend church regularly, who are committed to their faith, actually test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Okay. They interview the wives okay, separately. I'm pausing, I always I'm pausing, I'm pausing, I'm pausing, I'm here, I'm here. So she said Christian men who attend church regularly score as the most engaged, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? I would agree with that. They actually do. And m multiple studies have shown this. Our studies showed this, but it wasn't, I mean, we did a very large survey of 20,000 women for our book, The Great Sex Rescue. And yes, the more religious you are, the better you do. But ours is not the only study that has shown this. The Harvard Longitudinal Study shows this. Like multiple studies show that the more religious you are, the better you do, and the Christians tend to do better. But that's not what she's arguing. Wait, hold on. Do you remember? I, let me unpack okay. this real quick. When you say engage, because I, I thought that in the original, like in, in Alex's trailer, it was that men who are Christian are like the least abusive. It's kind of the vibe, right? Like they're not as problematic. It's not as toxic yeah. masculinity. But you said that in your studies and in other studies, the higher, the more religious men are, the more engaged they are. Is, is, are you just saying the same thing differently or am I missing? Yeah, is there a, yeah. A discrepancy no, that's there? it. The, the more religious you are, the, you tend to be more engaged with your family. The more engaged you are with religion, the more engaged you will be with your family, the better you will be with your family. This is true, but that's not the argument that she's making in her book or in this podcast. And I don't know if you remember it from the very beginning clip that Alex Clark made, but she was saying that it was conservative religious men. Yes. It's not conservative religious men that do best. It is Christian men. And there's a difference. Mm, okay, so, that's interesting. This is so so let's 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 imagine, okay, that there is a classroom. And that classroom is filled with kids who come from families who hire tutors who spend like three hours a night playing board games with their kids and playing Mozart and they have piano lessons. And so 28 of the 30 kids in this classroom come from that kind of a home. And two of them, you know, their dad is Bubba and he drinks most of the time and they watch SpongeBob SquarePants or whatever kids watch these days that is brain dead, right? And now we now imagine that we find that the kids in this class on average do better than kids in any other classroom in the United States. Mm -hmm. Can Bubba then claim that his kids do better than any other kids in the United States? No, he cannot. <laughs> but what's happening is that, that that conservative Christians, so conservative patriarchal Christians who believe in male headship and who act it out, 
okay? They are claiming that they do better than everyone else, but they are only a very small piece of this pie. And you do not know if you are the piece of the pie that is bringing the average down. Because when studies are done of Christians, they are done of Methodists, of Lutherans, (laughs) of Catholics, of Eastern Orthodox. They aren't just of evangelicals. So when you see studies of like Christians do well, it's not... Southern Baptist Christians who attend an SBC church every Sunday. It's Christians who are involved in some sort of church. And it may not be the conservative patriarchal one. Okay, this is actually a very important thing to mention. So what you're saying is that is that the studies that you're talking about that show what you just said, that this is true, are taken mm-hmm. from a wider sample than just the SBC church or the... Exactly ultra reformed or whatever it is, you know, conservative evangelical framework. It's a broader mm-hmm. swath of that, a, 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 a broader swath of Christians that we're talking about. And then the question becomes, you know, are those, you know, whatever patriarchal, I believe yeah. headship and I live it out. Are, can they then claim, Oh, look, my Christianity actually is the healthiest expression of what it means to be a man in 2024 right. America. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Because one of the studies that's often used is is the 2019 world map from the IFS. They had, I think they had, they didn't have as many as us. I think they had like 12,000 or 16,000 people or whatever, but it was from all over the world. Okay. And if you were to look at Christians compared to non-Christians, you know, you have in your, in your classroom, let's say you have 10 Catholics, you have like three Anglicans, <laughs> you know, a lot of the Catholics are from Peru and Mexico. And then, and then you have like a couple of American Lutherans and maybe one SBC and they, that group, that classroom does really well. But the American SBC was not necessarily bringing that average up or down. And we're going to go into more of the detail where I can tell you whether it does bring it up or down later. But I'm just saying, when you look at surveys of Christians it doesn't tell you whether conservative patriarchal Christians are doing better because they are not all Christians. That is so helpful. And so you were going to unpack if that section brings things up or down. I mean, Heidi sums it up well, well here. Sheila's point, studies about Christians don't mean only conservative evangelicals. Christians are a bigger group than that. I agree, Heidi. That's really helpful. Like I said, in the 19th century, it, was, it began to be accepted that men were more, more secular than women, that they were not, that um, biblical morality didn't have the same hold on their hearts. But it really took a turn with the rise of Darwinian evolution. And this was a bit of a surprise because most people think, wait, that's about science, (laughs) genes and fossils. It had a huge impact on American concepts of masculinity because Darwinian thinkers began to write that the men who won out in the struggle for survival would be men who were ruthless, barbarian, savage, um, and predatory. So if it's coming from Darwinism, then that proves that it's not from Christianity, this idea of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Okay, that was the clip. Is that what you wanted to respond to? Yeah. Okay. So she's making the argument that toxic masculinity came out of Darwinism. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then Alex is saying, yeah, so you can't blame it on Christians. Mm -hmm. But this is such a strange argument because we're not— we're, we're talking about today. And who cares who started it? What mm. matters is who is continuing it. Mm-hmm. Right? And like yep. that book you held up a minute ago, that is a supposed Christian. Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like, who is this it? One. Yes. Who is it that is feeding the toxic masculine masculinity tropes today? 
Mm. Yes, there are. There's certainly there's it certainly is in the secular world, too. Mm-hmm. But we cannot ignore the fact that it is huge in the Christian world. And they're very, very quick here to blame it all on the secular world and ignore the fact that it is a lot of Christians who are perpetuating this today. Yeah, I mean, we, we should also mention this is also historical. Again, I'm going through that book, A Fever in the Heartland, about the KKK, which claimed to be a very Christian Protestant organization. Mm-hmm. They were full of abusive men, you know, who would say one yeah. thing on Sunday and then you know, beat their wives later on. And also think about even the SBC, the conservative resurgence, right? Paul Pressler was one of the main architects of that. And uh, horrible accusations of abuse have come out that seem to have been like an open secret in the SBC for a long time. And that was in the 70s and 80s. So this dichotomy that, oh, it's the secular Darwinist, which again, also minimizes the fact that Christians, many do believe in evolution for good reason, but I digress. But, you know, it's the secular Darwinists who are responsible for toxic masculinity, and it's the Christians who are always pushing for a healthier version of manhood flat out. But that that's a really, it sounds like a false binary to me. It really is. And well, and, and as Rand, Raymond in the comments said, this didn't start with Darwin. Exactly. Toxic masculinity did not start with Darwin. Yeah, and also right. Darwin, Darwin believed in God. So he wasn't even secular. So <laughs> the, whole, okay. the whole thing is really, the whole thing is really strange. But, but what they're doing here is they are putting the idea of toxic masculinity in the secular space, not the Christian space. And mm. you just simply can't do that with any intellectual honesty. If you look at what's happening right now. Got it. All right, let's go to the next clip. We'll keep going. There's a lot to get to because we have to answer the yes. question. So yes. does this conservative, patriarchal, evangelical yeah, thing that we're a part of that go up fun. or down? Let's so, go. All right, here we go. This is fun. This is such a good time. I love doing this. In my book, I go through uh, the social science data where sociologists and psychologists go to ordinary Christians and say, well, what do you think it means? How do you live out the biblical view of, of headship? And the reason I did that is because the charge is that Hedge, the, the doctrine of headship, you know, headship in the home, turns men into overbearing, oppressive tyrants. Well, that's an empirical claim. You know, does it? So that's, I wanted an empirical answer. You know, let's look at what it does. When men actually hold these views, do, do they become overbearing tyrants? The evidence was absolutely not. I was astonished when I read the actual surveys done and what Christian men and women said when okay, they were let's, asked. Let's, you know, what does, let's, let's stop it there. I'm here. Okay. Now, and this is the heart of her argument, and this is where she goes totally off course. Okay. Mm-hmm. So her argument is this the secular world is saying that the Christian doctrine of headship is bad, and that this idea of men being the protectors and over women is is toxic, but actually when you study it, it isn't. Okay. So, mm-hmm. Tim, if I Sheila. wanted to know the effects of spanking on kids. Would it be better to survey parents who agreed with spanking or would it be, be-, be better to survey parents who actually spanked? Right. You'd want to, you'd want to look at parents who actually spanked, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What she basically did was she pulled data from people who agreed with headship, but she didn't look at whether or not you acted out. And here's mm. the thing. Okay. The vast, vast majority of Christians who say that they believe that the husband is in charge. And by headship, it, it's this idea that comes from, they, they, they get it from Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, mm-hmm. that, that the husband is head of the wife. They think that means authority, even though in Greek there are several words for head. 
one does mean authority, similar to what we would say head of a corporation. That is not the word that the Apostle Paul chose to use there. He chose to use a word that, that is more about source or about unity. And so headship doesn't have an authority base, okay? Yeah. But that that is what a lot of patriarchal conservative Christians believe. In fact, most people who attend an evangelical church today would say that they believe in male headship. And when you when you ask them what that means, they they will often say, well it means that the husband, you know, if you just can't agree, the husband makes the decision. So yeah. he's the tiebreaker. That's what they figure it means, okay? Now, in our survey of 20,000 women, we found that 78.9% of couples make decisions together. They just don't ever use that tie-breaking vote, even if they believe in headship, okay? So it's like you might believe in it, but you don't act it out. And as okay. long as you don't act it out, things are pretty darn good. Mm. This, is, this is what we need to understand. Okay, before I give you some stats, I want to take- Can I ask clarification even, on something? Yeah, Do you yeah, mind? Yeah. So I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You didn't survey just- Christian women, like broadly, you targeted evangelical women. So the folks that, that we're actually talking about in this, like that we're, hmm. we're trying to narrow in on, right? And you were saying that even, is that correct? Because I'm trying to understand I mean, like- we were, we were predominantly evangelical. We did have a lot of other ones just so that we could have a control group and people to compare them to, but we were predominantly evangelical. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is I know that one of the critiques earlier was that, hey, the reason why uh, it's it, she's using the term Christian is because they served a wider group than just the patriarchal evangelicals. In your survey of 20,000 women, who were you primarily targeting for your research? It was mostly your conservative evangelicals, but we had but we Got had it. a lot of others too. That's like we did really, have, really we, helpful. We had enough to make statistically significant comparisons. Cool. So. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that yeah. I understood the, maybe the difference here. And so you're saying yeah. that even though 78% of people you might have surveyed said that they agreed with some form of this headship thing. They didn't They didn't actually live it out in the sense of what you're describing. Yeah, 79% did not live it out. I forget how many actually agreed with it. Like the majority did, but, but okay. the vast majority of Christians, even in the evangelical world, don't live it out. Okay. Let me, mm. let me back up again. I'm going to give you another, another thought. Sure. Let's I'm in Canada. Okay. Canada's okay. freezing. And let's say that I worked for a public health department and I wanted to figure out, hey, how can we get Canadians to stay healthier in the winter when you don't want to go out and exercise? So right. I'm going to do a study on whether or not fresh air helps Canadians feel better. And so we ask people, how often do you go outside every day? And what we find is that if you go outside like two or three times, people tend to be really healthy. But the more often people go outside, the less healthy they get. And so it's like, wow, well, maybe we should tell people to stay indoors. Now, what's going on here is that there's actually a con something called a confounding variable. And that means that there's something else affecting our outcomes that we're not measuring because we haven't thought of it mm. or we haven't put it in our model. So mm. in this case, what we're not measuring is the effects of smoking. Because who is it that goes outside eight times a day in the winter? heavy smokers, <laughs> mm. right? And smoking is so bad for your health that you only need a few heavy smokers in your, like in your population to really influence the results down. Okay. Right. Okay. Religiosity works in a very similar way, but opposite. Religiosity is so overwhelmingly positive that when people attend church, when they're part of a faith community, you know, think about it. If you need to move and you belong to a church, you'll have 30 guys show up as long as you give them pizza, right? If you're have my, my daughter Can is confirm. about to have a, 
my daughter's about to have a baby, my youngest. And like she had two showers. She had so much stuff. We had to make baskets to give to the pregnancy crisis centers, Hmm. you know, because she was just overwhelmed with gifts. Like this is what happens when you're part of a community, a faith community often is there's just overwhelming benefits to it. You have friends, you have people who look who look after you, you have mentors, you have a purpose in your life, you have Jesus, yeah. all these things are great, okay? Sure. It just so happens that in America, if you're going to be highly religious, you're going to tend to go to a conservative evangelical church. And so when we see results about how people who attend conservative evangelical churches are doing better than the general population. That may very well be true, but it isn't because they're conservative. It's because they're attending church. It's just attending church is just that powerful of, of, yes. of a life benefits that it can even yes. overshadow some of the more toxic elements of these conservative spaces. Is that kind of the general idea yeah, here? Exactly. So we had, we had um, statistically significant results from six different nations. All right. Um, for our survey of 20,000, the healthiest nation was New Zealand. Okay. Like in terms of marital and sexual satisfaction. So the New Zealand, UK, Australia, Canada, the US, South Africa, that's the order of it. Basically, the more conservative you are, the less healthy you are. Hmm. The more in favor of gender equality you are, the healthier you are. Hmm. So it's not that conservative patriarchal people are the healthiest. It's just simply that in America, conservative evangelicals tend to go to church more. <laughs> Can I make a point about this that's so important? I think this is helpful because I, I often have wrestled with what you said that, hey, the evidence does support that high religiosity is really a, a benefiting, it's very beneficial to your life. Yet I deal in a space and so do you, right? Where we're part of this like, you know, a deconstruction thing where so many people, I'm sure you get the DMs too, are telling you about their terrible church experience that hurt, especially for women, that really messed them up. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to go just off of my experience and what I've been told that might not be, you know, proven in data. But at the same time, how do I account for these variables then of like getting quite literally tens of thousands of DMs or people saying, yeah, this happened to me. And like, like my friend Dan says, it's like going to a hospital and getting injured, right? You expect to go to a place that's going to that's gonna be life-giving. And instead you come out with like, you know, you're missing uh, a leg or something like that. So this is helpful to kind of s- distinguish the layers between high religiosity actually is very life-giving, but also there can be very unhealthy expressions of it that can that can uh, taint the actual exactly. result. And that's what we found. This is our this is our second big book, She Deserves Better. So we surveyed, we did a, a second survey, I got to move the other way, of 7,000 women for this one, looking at how their experiences in church affected them long-term. And what we found, again, is that kids who went to youth group tended to do better, okay? Until, and this is the big until, mm. until they internalized a lot of the toxic teachings about modesty, about consent, et cetera. And then, it actually would have been better for them in terms of um, future marital health, in terms of self-esteem, et cetera, not to have gone to church at all. So it's like, as soon as you internalize toxic stuff, then the benefits of religiosity disappear. And yeah. this is what Nancy Piercy is not admitting because she's, she's taking the credit for religiosity, but she's not admitting what happens when you actually act out headship. And in that clip wow. we just watched, I don't know what the next clip is because I actually want to go into some of the the stuff she studied about headship because it's it's so off base. Do you want to play the next one? And if it's not what I think it is, I'll make yeah, you stop and I'll, and I'll, sure. tell, I'll tell my my point. But the yeah, audience, listen, let, let, let me is. just show really quick. I mean, Daniel says super content. Well done. The audience is here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> it sounds like to really maybe 
potentially oversimplify. I don't mean to, but to, to sum up what you're saying, these things like patriarchy and what you just cited are more like contaminants in what can be a very mm-hmm. good thing, right? Exactly. Like they're they're not actually the benefit; they're actually the problem mm-hmm. to what makes a healthy religious experience healthy. Is that a fair way of oh, saying it? Yeah, actually, I, I will say it before you put the next clip on, because what she was saying in the clip that we watched is they asked couples what what headship meant to them. Okay, now what she's referring to is a study that was done by a, a sociologist named Sally Gallagher in 2002, and she wrote like the textbook. It's just an incredible book on how evangelicals do gender. And it's based on information from the late 90s. Nancy Piercy portrays this as if it's today. She says the word today, couples say this multiple times when referring to this research, which was done before my youngest child was born. And my youngest child is now about to deliver a baby. Mm. So I find this problematic as a scholar. This is very poor scholarship. But nevertheless, (laughs) what Sally Gallagher found is that the majority of Christians and again, this is late 90s, say they believe in headship, okay? But what they actually practice is pragmatic egalitarianism. Mm. So they believe in symbolic headship, but they don't practice it. They practice egalitarianism. And she said for, for most Christians, the idea of headship is, is more like virtue signaling. It's more like saying this is how we do marriage different from the world than actually doing marriage different from the world. I just want to give an anecdotal piece of evidence for that. That is my parents. My parents, my dad and mom would say exactly this. We believe in headship mm-hmm. and whatever, but I've they've had an amazing marriage for 30 something years and it is very much egalitarian in practice. Like they both have different roles, they both complement each other, they make decisions together. So I think, you know, and my parents are I would say very conservative in that sense, but you know, inheritance is everything, but pragmatically they tend to live mm-hmm. out exactly what you're talking about. So. Yeah, and so and this is what and this is the 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 argument that Nancy Piercy makes is this. Because people who say they believe in headship don't act it out, therefore it's fine to believe in headship. Therefore, we can say that the people who believe in headship do fine. No, Nancy, we can't. And I'll tell you why. There's this, there's, I, I forget which, the John Gottman, the one where I have the John Gottman results. Oh, 81%. Okay. Yeah, can I you, got that Can you right put here. that slide up there? Boom. Okay. When we act out complementarianism, okay, when we actually act out the man having the tie-breaking vote, the man getting to decide things, John Gottman, who's the world's premier marriage researcher, okay, he found an 81% chance of divorce. Wow. So acting out the man being in charge has an 81% chance of divorce. In the great sex rescue, we were measuring things slightly differently. We couldn't look at chance of divorce or a chance that an individual marriage will eventually end in divorce. But we did find that if you act this out with the guy being in charge, you have a 7.4 times higher divorce rate. That's what you say here. So so that's like huge, right? Now, Nancy Piercy quotes John Gottman from the very chapter in his book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, where he said that when men don't share power, when they make the decisions, there's an 81% chance of divorce, okay? She -hmm. quotes from that very chapter. But later in that chapter, what John Gottman says is most people, most men who are religious, who believe this, don't act it out. And as long as you are emotionally healthy, it doesn't matter whether you believe in man author- male, male authority or not, as long as you don't act it out. And so she quotes him as saying, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. You're equally healthy. Mm. And it's like, no, Nancy, you can't quote that. You can't quote that quote without acknowledging that Gottman's point was when you acted out, bad things happen. 
I mean, this here it is. I found the quote from the Gottman Institute. Even in the first few months of marriage, men who allow their wives to influence them have happier marriages and are less likely to divorce than men who resist their wives' influence. Statistically speaking, when a man is not willing to share power with his partner, there's an 81% chance that his marriage will self-destruct. This makes complete sense. Makes complete right, sense. Exactly. Exactly. And then a couple of pages later, he's talking about how most religious men don't actually act this out. And and if you don't, you have an, you you can be equally emotionally healthy. And so Nancy Piercy's point is, look, whether you're conservative or progressive in terms of what you think of gender roles, you, Gottman says you can be equally emotionally healthy. But Gottman said that's only true if you don't act it out. Right. And right. that's what she never, ever acknowledges yeah. is that acting this out is really, really awful. Yeah, that's really good. Hello, my name is Sharon Roggio. I am the director of 1946, the movie. We know that there is harmful rhetoric that seeps into our culture that sometimes comes from our church buildings. We know the impact of fundamentalist theology that is designed to uplift certain groups and marginalize others. We also recognize that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with with care and empathy as oftentimes it is our loved ones who uphold these beliefs. And that is why I support Project Amplify. Never in our lives have we been more inundated with misinformation and disinformation, but Project Amplify provides good information and a middle ground to give us some hope around a lot of this misguided information and beliefs. If you'd like to help Project Amplify, please consider a donation today and you can find out more with the click in the link below. Thank you. All right, shall we keep going? Friends, yes, this is great. Shirley, you're putting on a masterclass. This is one of my favorite lives. We've had Beth Allison Barr on earlier talking about <laughs> women's suffrage. So we're talking about this. I love this. This is great. All right, next clip. I think we're here. Does headship mean? Oh, wait, we finished have, this one already. Let's keep going. Yeah, you can uh, Christian couples are the least likely to divorce, 35% less likely to divorce than secular couples. And then finally, they have the lowest rates of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. I'm going to play that clip one more time for the audience, make sure, make sure they got all of that, and then I'll have you, you, you respond, Sheila. Less likely. Okay. Uh, Christian couples are the least likely to divorce. 35% less likely to divorce than secular couples. And then finally, they have the lowest rates of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. Okay, so the claim is that Christians are less likely to divorce and have lower rates of domestic violence. The floor is yours. Okay, overall, it is true that those who attend church have lower rates of divorce. Okay. Great. That does not mean that conservative Christians have lower rates of divorce. But, le but let me ask you another question. Do rates of divorce really matter? What is a better measure? Because to me, a marriage staying together that is absolutely horrible and abusive is not a success. And so the real question is, what is the quality of the marriage in these groups? And in conservative religious spaces, you are not allowed to divorce for abuse. Focus on the family does not condone divorce for abuse. John MacArthur sends women back to abusive yes. husbands. Yes, he does. John Piper, Don Piper's church excommunicated Natalie Hoffman, who divorced her abusive spouse. You know, we hear about these things. And John MacArthur excommunicated Eileen Gray. 
yes, whose husband was a pedophile, right? We hear about this over and over again. And so women in these spaces are not able to divorce. So just because the divorce rate is low does not mean the marriages are good. Hmm. And that's a huge issue. I have a theory. Do you want to hear my theory? This is like totally a tangent, but you want as to hear my theory? As long as we're theory? clear, just a theory, I'm, it's he- I'm a here hot for take. it. It's hot, hot take. Hot take. Hot take. Okay. So in the 60s and early 70s across the United States, no-fault divorce came in in the States one by one. And what you saw was the divorce rate skyrocketing because as soon as no-fault divorce came in, there was yeah. pent-up demand, right? There were all these people who were miserable that weren't in good marriages and suddenly they could get out of them. And they did in large numbers. And the divorce rate has been falling ever since. There was a slight uptick during COVID and now it's back down again. So ever since the late seventies, the divorce rate has actually been falling. So mm-hmm. every time a Christian pastor says, we, you know, look at how terrible everything is and the divorce rate is increasing. No, it's not. It's been falling since the late seventies. Okay. I think that that similar huge upward trend of divorces, I think we're going to start seeing that in the conservative evangelical church over the last, over the next 10 years, because there's a huge pent up demand for divorce because there are so many women, especially in abusive marriages. And up until now, they haven't been allowed to leave those marriages, but increasingly there's, there's, there's groups like this online. There's, there's bare marriage where I'm from baremarriage.com, bare marriage podcast. There's so many amazing abuse advocates talking about how, God does not expect you to stay in an abusive marriage. And I think we're going to see a huge uptick in divorce. No, I'm, I I think that is a very, you know, I, I think there was someone on Twitter, a, a pastor who kind of cited these things and like kind of spelled them out the same way. Josh kind of proving, did. Yes, Josh it was Josh. did. I didn't yes. want to say the name, but I'll say it. He actually has me blocked on Instagram. So Josh, if you're watching this, please don't block me and talk to me. I promise I'm not going to bite your head off. But yeah. he kind of made this whole post of like why, essentially why evangelical conservatives are, are doing it the mm-hmm. best. Like he didn't account yeah. for the broader Christian thought. And the first thing I thought was, you know, I grew up in a culture that said, if you got divorced, you were sometimes kicked out, you were shamed upon. I could see why uh, conservative evangelicals wouldn't have as high of a divorce rate because it's so looked down upon. But that's not a good indication of, of, of the marriage automatically being healthy or equal or one partner being happy in it. I just don't think that, that, that that's an automatic, you know, equation for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And then the second, the second thing that she said was that abuse is lower. This is iffy. We have tried to measure this a lot. What, what scholars have said is that while the instance abuse of abuse may be similar in Christian and non-Christian spaces, Christians put up with it for longer. And so it's Mm. more detrimental when it happens in a Christian marriage, because we have societal forces telling us to stay and we have a lot of religious guilt. And so it often hits religious women worse. And, and religious women tend to stay longer in abusive marriages. One of the sociologists that Nancy Piercy quotes almost, almost exclusively in all of her, in all of her work is a guy named Brad Wilcox. Yeah. And Brad Wilcox did, was one of the authors on a huge study out of the Institute for Family Studies in 2019, where they looked at divorce. Well, they looked at multiple things about marriage, but one of them was divorce and they divided everybody into six categories. Okay. Highly religious, so both people are highly religious, they attend church a lot. Mid-religious, where maybe one person is religious, but the other isn't, or they just don't attend church that often. And then totally non-religious, so that's three. And then within each of those three groups, they divided people, whether you believed in male headship and whether you believed that you know the husband was in charge and you were more patriarchal, or whether you were egalitarian. And that led to six groups, okay? Mm-hmm. When you look at abuse... 
the men who reported, I think it was 27% of men who were not religious, but believed in male headship, said that they had been abusive in their current relationship. So that was out of the six, that was the worst. So non-religious men who believed in male headship. Got it. Okay. The second worst was religious men who believed in male headship. And a quarter of them admitted to abusing their current. So 2% difference, 27%, 25%. Yeah. The best of all of those six were religious men who were egalitarian. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So it's like, it's like, yes, There are you know, there are men who are not as abusive and tend to be Christian, but not the ones that Nancy's talking about, because mm-hmm. her whole book is saying that, you know, men who are complementarian do amazing and they make amazing husbands. And that's only true if they don't act it out. Right. And if the theology only works if you don't act it out, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for that theology. Yeah. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Okay, next clip. <laughs> next clip. This is great. Next one is, is titled Better Sex. Ooh, let's see what they have to say. Okay. So this was an article in the New York Times, and he said, it turns out, direct quote, it turns out that 73% of women who hold conservative gender values and uh, attend church regularly with their husbands report high-quality marriages. And here's how he puts it. The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. So I did this see is some the data. survey recently that said that conservative Christian women are having better sex. Oh, that's in my book too. <laughs> okay, so this is actually important, right? Because now, now Nancy is focusing in on conservative, you know, evangelical Christian women, and the claim is that they have, I guess, a better marriage, and also they're having really good sex. Okay, what are your thoughts here? Yes. Now, when she says that this was an article in the New York Times, what she's not telling you is that that article was written by Brad Wilcox from the Institute for Family Studies. So he is a conservative religious person. Okay. Because when you say it's by the New York Times, it, you know, it makes it sound like it's, it's the secular impartial thing and it's not. Yeah. Okay. Again, it dep- when, when you're only measuring belief, then yes, conservative men do well. But when you actually measure whether they acted out, things do really badly. And that's that's part of the thing we're trying to say. Now let's let's turn to sex because this one's kind of interesting. <laughs> okay, I think I have a chart, a, a book, or a slide on this. I have two about the orgasm rates. I got Do that we have one. That one. Okay. One. Mm-hmm. What happens with sex when you act out complementarianism? So when you when you're in a marriage where the husband makes that final decision, and when you actually act act it out, okay. of women who act out complementarianism almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter. 95% of men do. So that's a 55-point orgasm gap. I see. Okay, 51.7% of women who act out egalitarianism almost always or always reach orgasm. So it's still pretty lousy. We have a lot of work to do on the orgasm. I gotta gap. say, it's I wasn't that impressed by the egalitarianism one. I'm like, only no, 51%. It's still lousy. Jeez. But, but that's a 12 point difference in the orgasm gap. Sure, sure. Okay, so mm-hmm. you can't argue that men who are conservative and who and who act out headship do better because they don't. And okay. yours is the biggest study that needs to be yeah. said here. Like you did the, the 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 biggest study on this topic to date. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And we're trying to distinguish between those who say they believe it and those who act it out. Because, like yeah. we said, like Sally Gallagher said in two thousand two, 
most people who believe it don't act it out. And so what good is it to just simply ask people what they believe? Totally. Right? Totally. Okay, let's look at the anorgasmia study. I, I got uh, that I have, one too. I have that yep. one too. I got that yeah. one for you. Okay, so 10% of women who practice egalitarianism never reach orgasm compared to 16.7% of those who live out male authority. So it really affects your orgasm rate, mm. you know? And obligation sex messages and and modesty messages are also highly correlated with, with sexual pain. It really, really bothers me. This is just a pet peeve. But when people talk about how Christians have such better sex and they don't mention how terrible our rates are of sexual pain, that mm. just guts me. Because evangelical women have two to two and a half times the rate of sexual pain as the general population. We're at 22.7% mm. of women experiencing vaginismus, 7% to the point that, that penetration is impossible. This is a huge issue. <laughs> and this is largely our issue. And so it really bugs me when Christians brag about how great our sex lives are, and we don't even mention the extraordinary incidence of sexual pain among evangelical women. And those can largely, we've studied this at length, and it can largely be traced back to the obligation sex message that you're obligated to give your husband sex when he wants it, and the modesty messages given to teenage girls. Yeah. When I first started doing TNE and I asked the purity question and the, you know, just thoughts, and most of our followers, especially on Instagram, are are women. And some of the stories were just shocking. And I, I, I've heard that all too often. And it is, it's helpful to hear your data on this because, you know, I'm, I'm obviously in a certain corner of the internet, you know, with certain people that have a certain experience and that's a legit thing, but you always wonder, broadly speaking, is this indicative of, <laughs> of the whole? So, you know, your research is helpful in that way of just confirming yeah. some things and knowing that we can do better. And get the great sex rescue if you've had sexual pain, because we go into detail on, there it on, is. on how to handle that and why that, why that may have happened. So, yeah. Great. All right. Well, keep going. Here we go. Okay. And here we go. Some people have asked me, well, why would they be worse than secular men? And apparently it's, it, it's this, you know, they feel religious justification for the way they're acting. Oh, okay. So yeah. The, Here, I, should, I, should have, I should have backed this one up. So what she's saying is that nominal Christian men, so men who like aren't quite as, as committed to going to church. So they do go to church, but not as often. They are actually the most abusive. They're even worse than secular men. Mm. So the men who are actually abusive, she says, are not the totally committed Christians. They're just the nominal Christians. And now she's explaining why. Okay, here we go. And some people have asked me, well, why would they be worse than secular men? And apparently it's, it, it's this, you know, they feel religious justification for the way they're acting. So the, the average secular guy who's maybe hitting his wife and kids doesn't feel any religious just, justification for that. But the nominal Christian has hung around the fringes of the Christian world enough to pick up language like headship and submission and will justify his abuse by using Christian language and feel like, well, I'm the head. I mean, that's, um, well, you, you, you go first. I'll have my thoughts after you. Okay, so the point that she's making is you can't blame Christian men for abuse because it's actually nominal Christian men. It's the guys yeah. who aren't that committed who are abusing. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nancy, but if people are using the words of headship and submission to justify abuse, that is a problem. I, this is the, argument here all the time. Oh, they're not real Christians. It's like, really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. They profess to be. They they say all the right things. Yeah. They attend your church every now and then. They probably tithe. And and also they pick up on the language. So they're obviously in the circle enough to pick up on language. And mm -hmm. the answer is, well, they're not, they're not committed enough to what? Patriarchy? 
to what? Right. Like, well, I mean, I, you know, like, like, like you've distinguished that many times, the difference between believing something versus acting out on it, the evidence that you're talking about seems to indicate that when you actually uh, believe and then act out this complementarian belief system, it actually does a lot of harm to people. So it's just, it's, I don't understand then. So I don't understand, I guess, Nancy's point here of, are these people really committed who actually believe this stuff or are they just, oh, I passed the church one day and her complimentarian and now I'm an abusive husband. I just don't, I don't understand. Okay. This is a bigger problem that I have with her scholarship because, and we did a podcast on this back in September of the Bear Marriage Podcast. I think it's episode 202, but you know, we looked at her footnotes and the studies that she cited Hmm. and she never did a proper literature review. Like if, if I'm going to look at, Hey, how do religious beliefs impact abuse? There are so many articles on that that have been written in the last few years. She didn't include them. Hmm. So for instance, there's a really big article on how beliefs in Calvinism correlate with beliefs in rape myths, rape culture myths. That I believe. (laughs) Yeah. The more you believe in Calvinism, the more you believe in rape culture myths and, you know, and the more you believe in, in justification for abuse. And, there's just a lot out there that now supports that. It is difficult to measure abuse. We had a hard time with it because once you ask questions about abuse on surveys, like you get yeah. into ethical dilemmas with university ethics approval, which is which is proper. Yeah, so right, it's just right. it's tricky to do. But it just it boggles my mind that she cherry picked so much and she ignores the real crises that are often happening in Christian marriages. Listen, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here because you're the expert, not me. But I mean, it's not a far, it's not a stretch for me to imagine that if you believe, if I believe as a man, I have a special calling by God to lead and be in charge over my family. I could easily see how that belief system, if acted out, can lead to very unhealthy tendencies, right? Where I feel like I have a, a special authority that my partner does not when it comes to our finances, how we raise our kids you know, how we do certain things, even, even her body, you know, bodily autonomy when it comes to sex and things. It's not a, it's not a stretch to imagine how dangerous this can get. And then you think about the, I mean, I'm not going to rehash them all, rehash them all here, but the story after story, right, of those spaces and leaders in those spaces being found out to do some pretty terrible things like John MacArthur, like John Piper, Paul Pressler, the SBC. I mean, we can get Mark Driscoll. We can go Robbie Zacharias. We can go down the list. And that's not including the pastors that no one knows about or the leaders that, leaders that no one knows about, right? And so like, I, I, it is very plausible. And then you can look at just some of the headlines and see a connection. I'm not saying correlation equals causation here automatically, but it's not, a, it's not hard to put two and two together in that sense. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's, and that's what we have found repeatedly in our surveys is that these, these beliefs, we call them toxic teachings, right? These Mm. beliefs about male entitlement to female bodies, about male entitlement to sex, about, you know, and acting out leadership, that these are highly correlated with really lousy stuff in marriage. Let me give, let me give you an interesting one. And this is about teenagers. So if you go to a church that heavily teaches the modesty message, right? That girls are stumbling blocks to the boys around them. So they have to watch what they wear. That boys struggle with lust in a way the girls will never understand. That boys (laughs) are visual in a way that girls will never understand. If you go to a church that teaches that, she is like way more likely, I forget the exact stat, but it's, it's, it's a significant jump. She is way more likely to be sexually abused in that church as a teenager. Mm or sexually harassed than in a church that doesn't teach that. So when we teach this toxic stuff, we actually do open up girls and women and, and 
boys too, you know, to be abused. And we're seeing that in our stats. And so the, yeah, it's, it, but again, her point is it's not real Christians. The Christians who believe in headship are doing great. No, Nancy, you can't claim belief in headship is okay if it's only okay if you don't act it out. Right. All right. We'll keep moving through these. We're getting there. Friends, thank you for being here. I love having you on this conversation live. And if you're listening to this on podcast, thank you for tuning in. We'll keep it going. Here we go. Who do you think has it worse in America today, women or white Christian men? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what the surveys show. Okay, hold on. I just want to point out that what a, I mean, that's quite the question. But now Nancy is claiming that this is what the data, the the survey shows. So she's positioning herself as an authority on someone who's read the research and has done the, whatever she has done to be a credible voice on this. Let's see what Mm -hmm. she has to say. If women or white Christian men have it worse in America? The surveys show men. The surveys show, oh, at least men think so. There have been surveys in which they were asked, do you agree with this statement? Today, discrimination against men has been, has become as bad as discrimination against women. And in surveys, men say yes. They think that discrimination (sighs) against men has become as big of a problem as discrimination against women. And they were asked sometimes, I have several surveys in my book. And so another one did ask, you know, do men have it harder now or women? And a lot of men said, yeah, we think men have it harder now. I just got to point out, it's very interesting that the surveys she's citing are ones where they asked men their perception of how they feel about things. And somehow that's the empirical data that men actually have it worse. I'm sorry, Christian men have it worse than women do. I mean, I'm already kind of flabbergasted that this is like the empirical data we're talking about here because, I mean, frankly, as a white, straight Christian man, we are complete babies so often, you know, like we cry about everything. Uh, and so it's just very interesting because it's like, does that actually prove though that, that, that you actually do have it harder in America? Yep. I don't think okay. it does well, at let's, all. Let's talk about what this empirically proves. Assuming that this survey was done well and that it is representative of the population, all we know is that the men who took the survey think that they are hard done by. We It does not tell us if men actually are hard done by because right. it hasn't measured the actual... Yeah, like like our men worse off. And so I just find this I, I find this amazing that she is willing to listen to men's opinions on gender equality, but not on women's. Right. And I do want to point out here, and I'm Sheila, I'm sure you agree with me. There are some stats about men and depression and them unaliving themselves at higher rates. Like there are oh, things yeah. that certainly are concerning that we this is not an anti-men you know, claim here that, that that all men are like this. We're just pointing out that like, it's interesting that the source of the data is men's perception of, well, again, this study's perception of those things. Okay. Go can ahead. I do a shout out on yeah, that note? Please. Can I do a shout out for this book? This is by Carolyn Custis James, the book Maelstrom. And what it is looking at is the effects of patriarchy on men. Okay. So I would agree. Men are falling behind educationally. Men are lonelier on a lot of social, social measures. Men are falling behind. That isn't because of women. The same reasons that men are falling behind are the same reasons that women are abused, that marriages are falling apart. It's the same root cause and it's patriarchy. When you raise men in a society where they can't, uh, they're, they're not allowed to get in touch with their feelings, where they're not emotionally healthy, where they don't know how to emotionally regulate, where they only have worth if they are at the top of the pile and if they're the alpha dog and they don't have any worth if they're not super sportsy or or, or whatever, or if they don't make a lot of money, then yes, yeah. men are going to fall back. But that's not women's fault. That's the same 
root as all of these other ills, which is patriarchy. It's the same problem. And so, yes, men are falling behind, but the way to solve that is to address the root issue, which is patriarchy. It's not to complain that women have it too good now. Can you hold that book up again so the audience can see it? They want to know who the author is. Okay. This is hard because like it's the opposite way for me, but Carolyn Custis James. Great. I really appreciate you pointing that out. Again, I think that in a world of extremes, right, people can think, oh, this is about, you know, you you hate men. Of course we don't. I'm a man. No, we don't hate men. In fact, in those studies should be concerning, right? If, if the data does show that, okay, this is happening to men, we should ask why, what's going on? And to your point, that doesn't mean it's women's fault or that it's feminism's fault. There's something deeper going on. And I, yeah. I honestly, as a man, Sheila, frankly, I resonate with many of the things that you said about, you know, being conditioned not to be able to show my emotions, feeling like feeling feeling like if I cry in front of someone, I'm, I'm a weak person. So I can totally relate to that for sure. I think it's really worth yeah. pointing out as as well as the sense of loneliness we have, you know, being again conditioned that as a man, I have to be this alpha dog that, you know, is an independent own island who can't have any friends and be mm-hmm. vulnerable with them. That definitely affects my well-being 100%. All right, let's finish up this clip and then we'll keep going. And um, I quote, I quote a, a psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. In fact, you've had her on here, Erica Commissar. Love Erica. <laughs> one of my m- most favorite guests I've ever had and one of my uh, audience's most favorite guests I've ever had. Well, she said, I have a quote from her in my book because she said, es- especially young men. She said, young men coming into my practice are feeling defeated, demoralized because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. Yeah, they they are growing up in a culture that is hostile to what they were taught was masculinity. And it is hard when you're going through social change. But the problem is that they have been given a script that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Men have been given a script that doesn't work. In fact, it never really worked. But you could manage to eke it out when you when you had privilege and you could just push through. But now that you can compete with women, it doesn't work anymore. Can I tell you about the Halo 3 study? I love sure. the Halo 3 yeah, study. Yeah, please, please. Okay. Drop so all the studies. A couple a couple of years ago, some researchers did a study on the video game Halo 3, which is a multiplayer game, and they used female-voiced players. So, I don't know the, I don't know if the players themselves were female, but like it looked like to all the other players it looked like these were women, okay? And what they found is that men who were really good at Halo 3 did not have a problem with the female players. But men who really sucked at Halo 3 were really misogynist <laughs> towards mm. the female players. And so females are, are a risk if you're not very skilled and mm. if you're insecure. And I just wonder how much of all these guys railing against feminism are really worried about what's going to happen if I have to compete on a level playing field because I'm not yeah. going to be able to. And there's a lot of young men who, yeah, they're not doing well. And the suicide rates are really high and the loneliness rates are really high. But it's because they haven't been given the right scripts Mm. about what it means to be emotionally healthy, about what success means in life. If you're taught that you're only worth something if you're at the top of the pile, then, yeah, it's going to be hard to to live in this society. And might I even be so bold to argue that, you know, a high Christian ethic that would fight against things like capitalism and fight for Mm -hmm. the last shall be first can actually be really healthy right, to a healthy masculine identity that wants to behave in ways and wants to think about things in those ways. I mean, I think I think there's, and, and that kind of maybe gets back to the idea that religiosity is a really life-giving thing in general. It's when it's it's lumped in with these like really toxic elements, right, patriarchy, et cetera, where things kind of go awry. But I think that there are tons in the Christian tradition in particular of beautiful, really healthy teachings that could, like to your point, 
help men recalibrate to think about things in a healthier way overall. And I say that as someone who has done a lot of that work myself. And that's my big problem with what Nancy is saying is because she's taking the benefits of healthy Christianity. And she is saying, see, you can get these benefits even if you practice this toxic form of it. Right. Right. Even if you believe this toxic form of it. And no, you can't claim the benefits of a different form of Christianity than the one that you are putting forward. It doesn't work that way. I love that. Okay, you have a clip here said where we agree. I, 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 so let's let's look at some maybe some overlapping agreement that you and Nancy have together. Here we go. So, for example, we we probably think the concept of toxic masculinity, you know, rose out of second wave feminism, nineteen sixties. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Right, and it oh, goes much further clip. back. Let's go, let's let's get the big picture. The big picture is it goes back to the industrial revolution. Before that time, men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation of men focused much more on their caretaking role. Here's an interesting historical fact. Most books and literature on parenting was addressed to fathers, not to mothers. If you go book, in a bookstore today, most of them are addressed to mothers. But fathers were considered the primary parent, and they did, in fact, spend as much time with their children as mothers did, which is hard for us to even imagine but especially their sons. You know, the sons were practically apprentices working alongside them in their trade or their craft. And so where did we lose all that? Do you want me yeah. to pause here? Yeah, like, like, I think, and this is something that she says in her book. This is something she says in the interview, which I think is really important, which is, yeah, Agreed. we lost something when the family splintered with the Industrial Revolution. Now, we also gained a lot. Like, we got lifted out of poverty. People aren't worried about their next meal anymore. <laughs> You know, like I don't, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not trying to bemoan all progress and we, but, but we did lose something. And, and in her book, she talks about how to regain the father as a big part of the family, because it was seen as like the kids in the home were now the woman's domain and work was the man's domain. And he was really separate from the kids. And so a lot of her book is inviting men to be back involved with the family, which is great. I just, I just find it really too bad that the way she does that is to pair it with a conservative patriarchal view of Christianity, which we know doesn't work. Well, it also feels to me very self-defeating. And this is a broader theme I'm going to pick up on. This is a Turning Point USA-powered podcast to kind of reinforce. I mean, the context of a lot of this is that women's suffrage was a net loss and, you know, evangelical conservative theology is so good. But I really agree heavy with Nancy on this. In fact, I've actually been to some of these spaces, Sheila. I've been to America Fest. I've talked to a lot of these people privately behind the scenes over a drink. And I've told them, guys, I'm all about being pro-family, which is why I don't understand how you can't be in favor of fair wages and a higher living wage and really making corporate corporations pay their fair share because the Industrial Revolution, I mean, yes, maybe did a lot of good, but make no mistake, right? We're still struggling with food insecurity for a lot of Americans. Wages have not risen overall when it comes to the average American worker. It's very little. We still can't get affordable wages. Now, it's not uncommon for two parents that need to work outside the home, right? And which does take away from that family time. So I'm actually completely in agreement that like, yes, like there is, a, I'm going to argue, a, a capitalistic model to this where corporations have a, a top priority of profit for shareholders at the expense of the worker, which then does devalue how much time dad does have with the kids, right? I mean, again, think I think about it often where my dad, a blue collar worker, literally broke his back for our family, worked incredibly hard to put food on the table. And I'm so grateful for that. 
but he wasn't home during the day. And when he came home, he was tired. Can I blame him? He was on the job site, you know, rolling walls and, and, and painting all day and doing construction, but he had to do that to make things work. And so I just think like, I, I see the overlap in these moments and I go, yet so often we diverge in, in particular, in particular with folks like Charlie Kirk and Turning Point, when their take on the, on bringing the family unit back is like, it just seems not to really solve the problem. You know, it seems to be more of a culture thing instead of realizing that we actually have a system deeply embedded in the American psyche that tends to really favor the profits of companies that don't actually exist. A corporation is not a sentient being at the expense of their workers. We still can't get affordable health care. If someone, you know, uh, has any kind of government subsidy, it's seen, it's seen as they're lazy and poor. All those things are reinforced by organizations like Turning Point USA. So that part does drive me absolutely crazy. Yeah, and as a Canadian, I just can't get over your lack of mat leave. I mean, for pity's sake, my oldest was born 29 years ago. I had a year off. Are you kidding Eight. me? 29 years ago. Don't tell me that. So depressing. Like, <laughs> that's just normal in every other industrialized country in the world. One of my biggest scares <laughs> as someone who runs a very small nonprofit is what happens when I can't afford my health care anymore. Because I have to go yeah. through the government marketplace and it's subsidized because I only make so much money. But if I make any like one dollar over that, all of a sudden my health care is like eight hundred bucks a month plus my deductible plus my copays. Like it's crazy, right. you know. And so right. I think again, I I always ask people in this space like, help me understand how these kinds of policies are pro family. I agree, yeah. mom and dad should be with the kids more. That's a healthy thing. So can we take some of the financial burden and stress away from them and give them some kind of healthcare security and, and maternity leave and maybe even childcare? No, that's socialism. Oh my God. Like you can't have your cake yeah. needed too, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, I know. I, I, I don't, I, are we out of clips? Cause I had two more things I wanted no, to say. I Is have, that the last? Uh, I have one on the, oh, I have one clip I pulled on, on the red pill. I wanted to point out an agreement there too, but yeah, that, okay. this is all I have. Okay. Let, can you throw out the rose colored glasses one? I didn't bring up this point, but I want to explain this. So the other issue with the claim that conservative Christian women who believe in, in, in male hierarchy do better is how do we define do better? Mm. Okay. Because most surveys say, Hey, do you like your marriage? <laughs> right. <laughs> now the thing is, the thing is, if you believe in male hierarchy and you're a really conservative Christian, you think marriage is your main thing in life right? Because this is what you've been told. Your most important role is as a wife and yes. marriage is, is vitally important. And so of course you're going to like your marriage because I mean, if you don't, then that's your entire thing. And again, Nancy Piercy quotes Brad Wilcox a lot. Brad Wilcox actually talks about this, how it is possible that maybe the reason that conservative women's um, marital satisfaction rates are so high is because of something called the rose colored glasses effect. Mm. Well, we measured it, okay? We actually put numbers to the rose-colored glasses effect in our survey. So there's two different ways you can ask people if they're happy. You can okay. say, hey, are you happy, <laughs> right? Or you can say something like, when you are in an argument with your husband, do you feel like he understands your point of view? Mm. Okay, so one is like a global measure and one is a specific measure. And what we find is that when you believe in this male headship, this complementarian view, okay, you're 35% more likely to have higher global marital satisfaction. So you're going to say, yeah, I totally love my marriage, right? 
But, and I forgot the number is, you're going to have to put it back up there. You're oh, 33%. I, got you. you're, I think it's 33%. Yeah, you're 35%. Or I get it. I got it wrong. You're 33% more likely to have higher global. Okay. But you're 35% more likely to have below average specific marital satisfaction. So I ask them, how's your marriage? They're more likely to say it's great. Mm. Ask them, does your husband listen to you? Do you spend time together? They're more likely to say no. Mm. So when you actually look at the specifics, it ain't as good. That ties into this clip, actually. Do you have anything okay, else you want to add to this? Yeah, just one more. I just oh, want to say this please. next one. Yes, I think this take is your hilarious. Time. Go ahead. If, okay. For the next one, we looked only at women who never reach orgasm. Okay. So they never, ever reach orgasm. And we said, I mean, we asked women, we asked all women this, but just for this particular stat, we only ran the women who never reach orgasm. And we said, hey, do you, are you happy with the amount that you orgasm, with the frequency of the orgasm? Women who never do. Okay. If you believe in complementarianism, you're 22% more likely to say, yes, I am happy. So I don't reach orgasm, but I'm happy. But I'm happy. Because, because why? Because they're told that sex is primarily about how happy their husbands are mm. and how frequently they're having sex. So this is the rose colored glasses effect. And I've, I've mm. gotten into Twitter debates with Nancy about this. And she just, she, she keeps saying the rose colored glasses effect is good. And it's like, no, Nancy, what it's showing is that the women that you say are happy, they're not really that happy. Unless you think it doesn't matter if women don't care that they orgasm. Well, if, if your whole viewpoint is that you have to make God happy and the way you make God happy is by making your husband happy and that, you know, you are the lesser of the two. You're the weaker vessel. This is, this is, this is stuff that's taught in churches, you know, and that you have to submit to your husband and you know, it's, you're, it's all about really his pleasure and not really yours. It's understandable how women can say that, right? Like, yeah, I never orgasm. I love my marriage though. (laughs) It's it's like, it's all, you know, right? Cause you want to please God. You don't want to be under the judgment of God, AKA sometimes via the church. Uh, when you have people like John MacArthur who who are willing to shame a woman who left her husband after he was abusing their kids and later on was found to be essaying their kids and is now in prison for that, right? And John has never actually repented from that thing. It's like, yeah, these spaces are designed for that kind of um, result ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Love that. I have one more clip. Friends, you've been with us for almost two and a half hours. Sheila, you've been with me oh for gosh. almost almost yeah. two and a half. The, the time does fly by, but I love this. This is so good, so helpful. Here's my last clip I want, and this is one that I pulled that I wanted to respond to. I think my tie in some of this stuff and then we'll, we'll end it. So again, friends, thanks for being here. And Sheila, thank you for lending your expertise and wisdom to us. This is so great to have you. Here we go. Speaking of the red pill stuff. By the way, red pill, for those who don't know, is like, think Andrew Tate, okay? It's this really high control, misogynistic, I would argue, complementarian viewpoint that women are kind of inferior and need to be controlled and owned by men. It's terrible stuff, but it's been taking off in the social media spheres. And there's a direct connection to like this right-wing ethos, and you're only a few steps over to the right, and you're in this territory. But I wanted wanted to highlight this clip. I think it's really important. Speaking of the red pill stuff, Conservative women, I don't know if you've seen this, conservative women across the country are experiencing an abnormal amount of men on a first date asking if they are willing to be submissive. I wonder where that comes from. Now, this is all stemming from red pill content, which is getting increasingly more and more popular and viral online. Okay, I wanted to highlight this because this is exactly... I'm making the claim that this is exactly where this complementary 
patriarchal view leads. You take this stuff to its logical conclusion, you do get red pill. You get men who have no problem asking a woman on the first date, are you going to be submissive? I mean, again, this is Ephesians 5, right? On the surface anyway, right? This is that kind of of talk. So it's interesting to me how Nancy and Alex can have this conversation and kind of advocate for some of these elements. But then Alex can point out that the red pill movement, she decries it. I'm happy to hear her say that and point out how, yes, you know, we're experiencing a rise in women who are being asked uh, if they're going to be submissive on the first date by men who are finding this red pill content. So yeah, where do you, where else do you think this stuff leads? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because both Alex and Nancy actually handled the bit about what it means to submit and what authority means in marriage. It wasn't bad. I mean, I wouldn't have said it the way they did and I would have, you know, I don't believe in authority in marriage, but, but their vision of what a proper marriage looks like yeah. is not crazy. It, it looks like sure. the pragmatic egalitarianism. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're still supporting the words <laughs> They're still supporting this this theology that puts men over women. And they're saying, oh, but it doesn't lead to anything because look at all these studies, which they're misrepresenting. Oh, but it's, you know, it's, it can, it's all healthy and people who misuse it, they're just misusing it. But no, people who act it out, the only thing that differentiates complementarianism from egalitarianism is hierarchy. That's yeah. the only thing. Okay, because egalitarians believe that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Egalitarians believe that, hey, it's okay if a woman stays home and the man goes out and work. You can do whatever works. Okay, the only thing that distinguishes it is hierarchy. And when you act out hierarchy, bad things happen. And so the fact that they are promoting a biblical view, which they think, well, they think is biblical, about hierarchy in marriage, and then they're saying, oh, but isn't it strange that this red pill stuff is happening? Right. Like, right. Yeah. Because they're all connected and you simply yes. can't have a healthy form of acting out hierarchy. Complementarian doctrine is only healthy if you don't act it out. And a doctrine that is only healthy if you don't act it out is not healthy. That's called hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> Believing in yes. something and not acting it out. No, I love that. I, I want to echo that. Listen, I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be the model egalitarian here, but my wife, she stays home with the kids and we decided that together, right? Because we wanted to be with, I work from home most of my day. We wanted to be with, with, with our family as much as possible. Now, if my wife's name is Sarah, if she wants to get a job, she's free to do so. I tell her that all the time, but we both agree that it makes more sense. And so you're right. Like the, it's not that, that, you know, having your partner stay with the, stay home with the kids or something is bad or that it's automatically complementarian. It's about the hierarchy that goes with the complementarian theology of, you know, it's God, me, the man, and then my wife, and then the children. That's where things go haywire. And like you said, just to reiterate, if you act that out, we see where the data leads, which means it's not a belief worth holding. Maybe you should find yeah. a new belief and live that one out instead. Yeah. And what I just want to tell like Christian pastors who are teaching this stuff, preach what you practice. The majority of you practice egalitarianism. So please start preaching that yeah. instead of preaching complementarianism. I stayed home with my kids too. I homeschooled all the way through high school, both my girls. My girls are planning to homeschool. Like, you know, we are egalitarian and we're, we're doing, so it's like this stuff is not necessarily toxic. It's yeah. the hierarchy and the power structures that are toxic. I love that. Sheila, you have been just amazing. You and Beth both, we covered so much and I can't thank you enough. Folks, the book is The Great Sex Rescue. Plus you have another one out, The Good Girl's yeah, Guide to just... Great Sex, set behind you and there's another yeah. one too. 
There's you got four. a bunch. Okay, so <laughs> Plug away. Great, great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better are our two big ones. And then if you have a couple, you know, let's just get married. Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex helps them get started well without, yeah, sexual pain, without the orgasm gap, without all of that fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a very public platform online on on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it, threads. You know, you're, you're everywhere. Where yeah. can folks find you? What's the handle? Okay. So just go to baremarriage.com and all Perfect. of my links are there, baremarriage.com. And you'll also find our courses and our books and everything. Yeah. Sheila, thank you for your time. We'll do it again soon. I really appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. All right, friends, there you go. I mean, two and a half hours. This is for me, this is where all the fun stuff happens. It is great to be with you. Hopefully you found this whole conversation helpful. We had Beth Allison Barr on about an, maybe almost an hour ago now talking about women's suffrage and, and responding to the claims made by Nancy. Then Sheila and I talked about all the other claims. There's so much here, so much to unpack. I'm so grateful for all of you watching this live or listening to this on podcast. If you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate a better way forward in their faith. If you want to donate, you can click on the link in our show notes. You can do a super chat. All the finances go right to TNE, the organization. And just so you know, we are completely financially transparent. You can literally go to our website. You can see our profit and loss statement. We have it all there. There are absolutely no secrets to where the money goes. Every cent goes to helping people find a better path forward in their faith, hold evangelicalism accountable, and hold space for folks who have been marginalized by the church. Please feel free to share this video, subscribe to our channel. I love doing this work. It's such a privilege. It's such an honor. Thank you for being here. Talk to you all later on.